0: I'm looking at you, kid.
1: I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella!
2: Suck on this. Cool. What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Reel episode 516. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from jean Goddard Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today, after I think a 15-month absence from Wrong Reel, we have returning Wrong Reel veteran Dave Eaves. And I don't even know why it's been so long. I mean, you've heard him a million times talking about Bergman with Becky or perhaps Valerian Barovchek with uh, Martin Kessler. <laughs> but Dave, welcome back to Wrong
1: Reel. Thank you for having me. I can't believe it's been 15 months, but time has no meaning to me, apparently. It feels like we were just podcasting yesterday.
2: Absolutely. Well, I think it's very ironic that we're tackling today the six moral tales by Eric Rumer. Since the last time we were on here, we talked about a movie called Immoral Tales, so we're going to go the total opposite end of the moral spectrum
1: today. I I have given my soul a shower (laughs) since our last episode. Even though uh, these are moral tales, but but they can get a little skeevy. Yeah, they can get skeevy,
2: but that's probably just because they're French <laughs> I feel like when it comes to diet and sex and everything the French just uh, they, they live well or they live aggressively and they uh, yes. I think a lot of times our um, our East Coast sensibility is very puritanical in comparison to our oh, yes. French counterparts across the ocean
1: oh yes no there, there are some movies that can only be made in France and- absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean, any, is one of them.
2: Yeah, any any country where I guess I don't even know if it's still the case now, but any country where the legal age of consent for a long time was 16, you know, you're getting into ethical quicksand where you can get into very strange <laughs> territory very quickly. But for just for a moment of seriousness, but this is kind of what why I love doing wrong real because Eric Rohmer is one of those directors where. In college, I always wanted to get around to him, but for whatever reason, never did. And then with Wrong Reel 138, Chris Funderburg came on, and we tackled his comedies and proverbs. And now today, we're going to be tackling The Six Moral Tales. So I've now seen 12 films by Eric Romer, and who knows if I ever would have seen any movies by this director if not for Wrong Reel. So I just can't thank you enough in advance for making the pitch, because... Without the constant process of discovery, when it comes to film history, your cinephilia dies on the vine. So I always enjoy these episodes where I get to go into undiscovered country.
1: I'm happy to to, to be the one here discussing it with you, uh, Rumer. He, he was he's one of the French New Wave directors that like never comes up on the radar because he's not as flashy as Godard or Truffaut or even like Agnes Varda. But he makes great films that I think you need to be of a certain age to fully appreciate. I think if I had discovered him in college, I would have said, this guy's boring. I'm never watching another movie by him. And it would have taken me a very long time to come back around. I took a French
2: film class my third year at UVA and the very first day just as a way of comparing French and American movies. And this was kind of a simplistic comparison. But the teacher showed us a scene from Terminator. and Then he showed us a scene from My Night of Mods. And at the time, I thought, oh, My Night of Mods. I I should check that out. It took me 23 years to get around to it, which is totally absurd because throughout my entire adult life, I've been seeing how Quentin Tarantino, of all people, is a massive fan. And he's always saying that Eric Romer, he or Romer, however, well, my pronunciation of French is abysmal, but he's always saying that Romer is a like a genre unto himself. And that, but if you yeah. see one and you like it, you're probably going to like a lot more. And I was listening to Brett Easton Elsa's podcast and he was interviewing Roger Avery. And Roger Avery used to say that when they were working at video archives, Tarantino's attitude towards Romare was not, is he good or is he bad? It's just a matter of, like, all these films are good. Just which ones do you like more than others? Like, Tarantino, just a a junkie. But he, I think he probably has more longevity than any of the other French New Wave directors because Godard, he's got, like, that seven-year period that's untouchable. And obviously, Truffaut just died young. But, like, Rivette and Chabral and Varda and all these other directors in that period... I think Romare probably made more movies for longer that people wanted to see than any of his other peers. So I don't know why he's less well-known than the other French New Wave directors, but I'm thrilled to be celebrating his stuff today.
1: I think it's probably because it's less commercial. I think they're very French. Um, and I, to, to your point, he is also the most consistent – Like. The films he's making in this set, the Moral Tales, which were some of his first films, are not that different from the stuff he was making in the 80s and 90s. Uh, Godard obviously has a huge shift uh, going into the 70s and his stuff that's happening right now, in my opinion, is a little is tough to watch, pouring uh, on unwatchable. Depending on who's doing it, I'm sure I'm going to get crucified by people on Twitter for saying I don't like modern Godard, but whatever. Uh, and you I won't guess- get
2: crucified by me. I think the only post-60s Godard film that I really liked was first name Carmen, which just blew my mind. That, but it was a total throwback. To his '60s style and approach, yeah. so it's like, all right, well, no wonder I like it because it just feels like a continuation of all the incredible stuff he was doing in the '60s. And but, uh, goddamn, I mean, Godard, when he's on, it's he's tough to beat. But I guess if I were to divide him on into different categories, everybody from the French New Wave does different things well. Like, I think like there's a lot of humanity in Truffaut. There's a lot of like self-conscious style in Godard. But I think when it comes to literary writing, Romare might be the greatest of all of them. Oh, most likely,
1: uh, and he, he's a very well-read person. Uh, Even in uh, Jacques Rivette's Out 1, they needed someone to speak off the cuff about, uh, I think it was Balzac, and the only person Rivette knew was Romare. So Romare is in Out 1 as like a scholar talking about – Balzac because no one else could
2: I mean you watch even just a scene from any of the features from six more tales and you realize you're dealing with somebody who knows a hell of a lot about art hell of a lot about philosophy and history and mathematics and there there are plenty of directors out there who are film film freaks and film maniacs Romero seems to pull in so many different influences from so many different disciplines and I think it's because he came late to movies he didn't really become a movie junkie until fairly late in life when he started
1: until his 40s yeah he's he's, 10 he's 10 years older than all the other french new wave guys and another thing to, to that point, I don't think you need to be as well-versed in literature as he is to enjoy his movies, whereas someone like a Godard, who is also very well-read, sometimes to appreciate what he's talking about, you need to get the references he's making, whereas just all of Six Moral Tales, he's basically taking these 18th century, or no 19th century novels, taking these kind of 19th century predicaments, these 19th century characters, putting them in the modern times and kind of seeing how they react with that, that kind of ideal, that very masculine, uh, misogynistic, uh, caddish, dandyish all of those kind of tropes that you would see there and kind of implanting them into the 1960s and the 1970s in France in beautiful locations.
2: Well, also, it's incredible just how clear he stayed until late in life. That interview on the, you recommend I buy this Blu-ray box that the Criterion put out, I guess, maybe in March or April. And on it, there's an hour and a half long interview with Romare when he's Eighty something. He's well into his eighties, yeah. and he's still he died so like
1: four cr- years later.
2: Yeah, but he's still so crisp and so clear when it comes to his technique and his influences and how he writes, and just talking about the differences of like adapting novels versus adapting or adapting stage plays or are movies more like short stories and novellas. And <clears throat> I just found it. Re- I I can't think of any director. Who, in their like mid, getting like deep into their 80s, can just speak for 90 straight minutes about so oh, many yeah. fascinating topics. I, I was just, I was enthralled by his, I guess, by his abilities as a raconteur, telling stories mm-hmm. about making all these movies. And it, and it helps that one of his most frequent collaborators and producers was help, kind of, you know, coaxing him along and kind of throwing out some interesting topics. But I, I just, I was blown away by the fact that he still seems like mentally to be totally coherent at that late in
1: life. And he's talking about projects he's working on. It's like, oh, I've been helping out with short films. I'm not taking directorial credit, but I'm taking the script and turning it. Well, I can't remember the phrase they use. It's very French. The The English equivalent would be like taking the script and making it into a shooting script or like a shot list. Um, it's probably in my Google history because I had to look up exactly what it was. But like that's kind of his style. That's all he really does. And it is so... Oh, uh, decoupage. Yeah, like yeah, he loves using that expression, yeah. Decoupage. But that's kind of... His style, he takes this script, breaks it down into its simplest levels, and if he shoots it that way, uh, it's going to take very little time to edit. It's going to be exactly the way he wants it. And uh, another big piece of his style that kind of uh, breaks back into that is very careful planning. Yeah. Very careful planning. Lots of rehearsal. And, pro- yeah. and probably a lot of luck as well.
2: Yeah, I mean this interview. We'll 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 dig into the interview repeatedly throughout this because they talk about most of these uh, moral tales throughout. But I just I was blown away by the fact that he's so literary, but at the same time he would rehearse his actor so much. If they wished to improvise, it didn't feel clunky or clumsy. It still felt organic to the rest of the story. And I also like how they finally. Kind of dispel the myth that he's a talky director, but not a visual director. And I think that's a totally unfair, oh yeah, comment that a lot of people make. Is he the same visual stylist as Godard? No, but his films are as sumptuous and beautiful as a painting. I mean, Nestor Almendros, who's one of the all-time great DPs, he shot fucking Days of Heaven for God's sake. Yeah, he shot the four features in the Six Moral Tales. And every single I frame is almost. stunning.
1: It, and that's the crazy thing. Uh, when, when they shot La Collectionuse, which is the fourth one in the set, but the third one shot, uh, the original director of photography quit because he wasn't getting paid, and he got a, had a paying gig come. And they had this one guy that was just helping out. And He said, well, I don't know how to use the camera." And they said, "Are you sure? Are you, you yeah? I can I I can do it." And then he ends up being one of the greatest directors of photography ever.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've been a fan of him since I saw Visions of Light in college, which is this great uh, mid '90s documentary about the art of mm-hmm. cinematography. And sadly, he died like at age 61. But he'd already made a couple films in Cuba, and when he decided to pick up the camera, started working with Romare yeah he just uh they were off to the races, and apparently he had this like this absent minor professor quality on the set where he everybody thought that like is he keeping track of things? does he know what he's doing, but he never made any mistakes. he just had this air about him, but he was a totally sharp director, and also when you 're working with insanely low budgets like on la, la, la collection. Any mistakes you make could be fatal to the film. And I, but I was blown away with the fact that they own, like the film itself, the final film was like a little over 8,000 feet long, but they only shot 16,000 feet, which is unheard of. Like most films have like a 15 to 1, like mm-hmm. footage to finish film ratio. That is a 2 to 1 ratio, which I've never heard of in all my days.
1: And it kind of gets back to his style. He he prefers the first take. He doesn't like doing it over and over again. Like there's the Stanley Kubrick way of things where, oh, you don't get a genuine performance until they're exhausted and you've done. Uh... <laughs>
2: Basically until they stop acting. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. But for him, it's like the first take is going to be the best, It's going to be the most natural. And that's one of the reasons why he also likes working with non-professional actors, uh, because of the fact that. A lot of actors are just like, no, I need to do it again. I, I need to get really into it. It's like, no, it was, it was already good, which, which I can appreciate, which I uh, like. And I think it's also good to speak towards his directorial abilities that he can have professional actors, like very famous people at the time, like Jean-Louis Trigognon with non-professionals. Trigognon. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm i going to butcher every For anybody every who French knows
2: uh, even a lick about French is going to be – just have their ears bleeding throughout
1: this podcast because I, I can't pronounce any <laughs> turn, <laughs> French name. Yeah. If, if you speak French, turn back now. Yeah. I meant to Google pronunciation, and I completely forgot that was the one prep. Oh, well, my not my do. lady
2: friend speaks French almost fluently, fluently, and I was like, "All right, I've been saying this guy's name for like twenty five years at this point because he's a legend." But like, how do you say Jean Louis Trentinon? She was like, Ugh. even Trentignon. she kind of kind of stumbled over his name, but I, they said his name a couple times in the the interview, and yeah, you we all everyone knows who we're talking about. But going back, to the thing about using the first take, uh, he had this great line where he said, "While the first take might have more flaws." It also has more qualities. And while the second, third, fourth take might be more perfect in terms of what you've rehearsed and what you're trying to do, you lose some of those qualities that make it interesting. And I just, I mean, obviously he wasn't dogmatic about it, but just in general, he just preferred his, his first take. And also, yeah. these are long takes. I mean, these are long takes, of people sitting yeah. around in the rooms talking, and uh, which, to, as you mentioned before, made the editing process very simple.
1: It's like, you like, can like, kinda, like with John and, Ford, you just shoot what you need. Yeah, and you can, without getting too far ahead of ourselves, because we still have a uh, few movies to talk about before we get to that feature, you can kind of tell that his style probably developed a bit in order to uh, accommodate for what they did not have yeah. in terms of a budget. And I think that you can see how it forms there and how it carries over through the rest of the films. Yeah,
2: they're shooting sound in the scene but that's oftentimes just a great, like, budgetary, it's a budgetary constraint. It's like, all right, we don't have the liberty or the luxury of shooting, of, like, recording a bunch of sounds, so even if you're shooting on the street and a car horn ruins the take, like, that's the take we're using, and, you know, It's It's there.
1: It's in the moment.
2: And, like, the shot, it's just, the the shot, the the scene is basically usually just one setup. They're not shooting a bunch of coverage from a bunch of of different angles, and he liked being his own set designer because he probably couldn't afford a set designer, so he wanted to pick the furniture and the paintings and that sort of thing, so, like, like you said, economic constraints can sometimes dictate. Style, but then he developed this incredible style. Like everything was shot in 1.33 to one aspect ratio. And I, anyway, I, I feel like when it comes to him as a visual stylist, he has an unmistakable style where almost every single frame of film from the Six Moral Tales is immediately recognizable as his signature style. It's just a yeah. different visual style from a lot of other directors. But let's wind the clock back to the beginning of the Six Moral Tales early 60s. He's working as an editor at the Cahiers du Cinema. He has a bit of a falling out due to, I mean, there's a lot of, um, I guess, political radicalism that was emerging at the time. If you look at Godard's films, he obviously completely, totally went that direction all in. And it seems like Romare was less keen on going that direction. He still enjoyed watching American films and just had a very different attitude towards filmmaking in and, and, and general at that time. So talk to us a little bit about the end of his days at Calle du Cinema and how he starts getting started, or how he starts his work on The Six Moral Tales. Because he had made a short in 1950. He wasn't entirely uh, a novice, but it seemed like this is the true beginning of his filmmaking career.
1: Yes, and it kind of seems like he wasn't quite sure what he wanted to do because he... all of these movies were first a collection of short stories which he wrote which didn't really have a novel style and it didn't really have a filmmaking style and um this is where my research has a gap here because i forget exactly how he decided to to start filming these i know that he wanted to get into filmmaking he had made one feature film uh whose name i brought up because i was going to butcher it it is where is it? Lasagne, uh, yeah, Le Sign Du Lion, which is like a... I, I have not seen it. I know that it's about a musician, so there's a lot of music in it. Uh, based on what I've heard, it's probably very different from everything else he's ever made since. So he's kind of not doing well. He's trying to find a way of making films. He's trying to find a way of getting budget. And he somehow meets Barbet Schroeder, who is 20 years his junior, uh, and convinces him to start a production company with him. And they produce two short films on 16 millimeter. No sync sound, um just very cheaply on the streets of Paris, uh with locations they knew, with people they knew. And that's how we get the two first entries in the Six Moral Tales, which is uh the bakery oh my goodness, Bakery Girl of, which I'm gonna look up again so I don't Bakery mess up Girl of I'm going to you're my French expert now, bakery <laughs> girl of monsoon. I,
2: I took two years of French in second and third grade, and then they fired me and demoted me to Spanish because I was so bad at <laughs>
1: yeah, so that, I didn't know you could be demoted from one language to another.
2: At my school in third grade, everybody knew that if they asked you to take Spanish starting in fourth grade, it's because you were too dumb for French, and ah. uh, yeah, so they, they kicked me out of French.
1: Oh, no. So the bakery girl of monsoon and Suzanne's career. And I actually read because the, the set that we've been talking about comes with the actual novel, the collection of short stories. I had watched those uh, right when I first got this set, knowing, knowing we were going to do this podcast, knowing that it wasn't going to be for a while. So I decided it's kind of like a refresher for the stories to read the short stories, which is great because it's basically the script. He follows it to a T, which is perfect because a short story is almost going to reach to a feature length. Uh, Baker Girl of Monsu is like 20-something minutes. Suzanne's career is 50-something minutes. They almost pair together perfectly as a two-part double feature with just different characters. And it kind of sets up the basis for what is in these six moral tales. It's typically centered around a dilemma in which a man needs to choose between two women, one of which he knew first. Someone comes and interrupts his flow. And in the end, he ends up with the first woman that he had his eyes set on.
2: Yeah, it's funny how I always lean toward movies that have a more kind of hedonistic moral mm-hmm. code, and so it's very unusual for me to respond emotionally to a filmmaker who's going in the completely opposite direction, but his characters are so clearly defined, and his writing is so marvelous, and the atmosphere and style of his films are so like contagious that he wins me over in spite of the fact that on, on on the surface, on paper, I should despise Eric Romer, but for some <laughs> reason he completely, totally sucks me in. And, I, and I, I love the fact that he had to almost invent this identity to become a filmmaker and film writer, how he took the names of Eric von Stroheim, who was one of his favorite directors, and the writer Sax Romer. You know, the author of the Fu Manchu series, and he combined their names into Eric Romer. He thought his family disapprove yeah, of the fact name. that he was going into showbiz. Who,
1: who picks a stage name? That's that, that. That's just like Eric Romer. It's like. Yeah, oh, but, okay.
2: but I love how he invented his stage name just to be a critic. Like his family was so – I guess they were going to look down upon his uh, his new vocation so severely that even just to be a writer and an editor at Cahiers du Cinema, he had to co- invent a completely new identity. But uh, yeah, I don't even know what his original name uh, – what it was, but I guess it, it no longer oh, matters. I, I have
1: it here. I looked it up on IMDb. Hold on. Bear with me. This is not good. Oh, there we go. Jean-Marie Maurice Cherrier. Gotcha. All right. That is his actual name. And also,
2: one thing we should also mention from this period, a few years prior to making uh, these shorts that are part of Six Moral Tales, he was one of the first writers who really went to war defending the reputation of Hitchcock. Everybody knows about the book Hitchcock Truffaut not it's the masterpiece. You and I discussed the book and the documentary mm-hmm. like four years ago at this point on, on Wrong Reel but in 1957 Romare and Claude Chabral wrote the book Hitchcock which is the earliest book-length study of Alfred Hitchcock so while Truffaut might have won that battle in terms of perpetuity but it um, has yeah, Romare he was also one of the people that was really banging the drum that Hitchcock was not a, a mere entertainer. He's not merely the master of suspense he's also a master
1: filmmaker. And there's a weird Hitchcockian quality to his films there's definitely a very like observational sense uh i i like hitchcock definitely the, the most hitchcockian movie he made was rear window this act of seeing something yeah, pure voyeurism. and yeah. yeah exactly pure voyeurism and you even see that in bakery girl of monceau uh i mean within the plot itself um and I, I think that all of these films kind of play on our preconceived notions of what movies are, what cinema is, of what characters are supposed to be experiencing. I think that he wants us, our moral code, is supposed to kind of fall in line with what these characters' moral codes are. And just as a quick little aside, that's what the moral tales are. It's not like you're going to learn something at the end of this movie. It's not it's, it's not an Aesop fable. It's that these characters all abide by a certain moral code. It may not be the most just moral code, but it's their personal moral code and it's their struggle with trying to uphold that. And typically it is about uh, their perceptions of women who they think that they should be with. Uh, and oftentimes they have come to some sort of realization of, oh, this woman I barely know is going to be my wife. I'm going to love this woman forever. And it's like, you don't even know her. Yeah,
2: she's you know a Catholic. I must, I must have her. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and, and But I like it. It's like it's almost like they are the narrator of it's a weird thing where the characters, the narrator oftentimes, but it's almost like they're watching a movie in which they appear because Mm -hmm. they're commenting on the movie and the dialogue and action of the character sometimes can be in total stark contrast or juxtaposition of what the narrator saying, which is a really cool, unusual style because he just, as a filmmaker rumor thought that you could do things with voiceover narration. Basically you could communicate ideas that are very challenging to communicate visually. But in spite of all this voiceover narration, He did still feel like he was almost like a silent filmmaker in a lot of ways, which Mm -hmm. is a strange thing. But I love the voiceover narration. A lot of people will say it's a crutch. Don't use it. Like you should be able to tell your stories pictorially. But I like the fact that he is telling his stories pictorially. He's just got additional commentary with the voiceover that Mm -hmm. oftentimes just gives you additional insights to what the visuals might be communicating.
1: I think it's also important to note that it was in vogue at the time to do that. Like one of the staples of French New Wave, which was taken from film noir, is having your character provide additional commentary on top of what's going on. Oftentimes because the piano
2: player uses a ton of it. Exactly.
1: So it's a stylistic choice also, especially for these first two films where they didn't shoot any any sound on set. They had to re-record it all later. It makes sense to add it there because it's going to fill in some gaps.
2: Uh, Speaking of re-recording the sound, I love that adorable moment in the interview where Barbet Schroeder basically calls out Romer on changing the voice. And he's like, oh, I feel kind of awkward about it. I hope you're not mad. But the the future filmmaker, once again, I'm going to butcher the name, Bertrand Tavernier, who did like Round Midnight and a bunch of other big movies, you know, major French filmmaker in his own right. But he dubbed the character in The Bakery Girl Monceau in spite of the fact that it's Barbet Schroeder playing the part. But he wanted the same voiceover to be the same voice as the actor in the context of the film. And he just thought that Tavernier had a a better voice for what he was trying to communicate. A
1: more literary voice. Yeah. He said that Barbet Schroeder's voice worked really well for the dialogue, but not very well for the voiceover. And it, I, it's just so weird to be like, wait, Barbet Schroeder? I know that name. Like he did all these documentaries. He he made all these American movies. Oh yeah, Barfly. I mean, he's huge. A ma- major filmmaker. I- it, what, what a what a storied career that is, as, as, a, as a tangent there. Yeah, it's funny how people like to talk about the
2: French New Wave, and they talk about a handful of directors, but there are plenty of directors in France who started before started after who are fascinating. I mean, people always say that Jean-Pierre Melville is the godfather of the French New Wave, and maybe he is, maybe he isn't, but I don't feel like he was part of that movement, but he was definitely making some of his best films
1: in At the, the 60s, and yeah. so
2: the, I feel like French New Wave is almost kind of made up after the fact, and... It was. I mean, I guess for me, the French New Wave, the true French New Wave are the people who started out as critics, who made the jump into being filmmakers. That's kind of the Mm -hmm. essence. If you love films so much and you write about them with so much passion and intensity, it's inevitable that you have to go out in the street with a camera and start making movies. Those, for me, are like the true French New Wave icons, whereas Mm Jean-Pierre Melville obviously was well-established as a filmmaker
1: long before then. Exactly, yeah. And it's those those critics that decided, like, I love this so much, I need to make one. They, they changed cinema forever. Like, there's movies before the French New Wave, and then there's movies afterwards. All of that style, everything there, has bled into even mainstream cinema.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, the fact that, like, Godard is making references to Rio Bravo and Contempt... That leads Mm -hmm. to people like Tarantino making references to movies in his in his films in the '90s and so on and so forth. And so, yeah, they 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 changed movies forever. And it it was the first time where pop culture commentary really got uh, kind of interwoven with uh, with 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 cinema or literary commentary. I mean, people talking about William Faulkner and so on and so forth. But I I absolutely love and adore the French New Wave. It changed
1: changed movies. So you're saying we wouldn't have Shrek if it was not for Jean-Luc Dart?
2: I guess everything is all part of a, like a tapestry. Like, I mean, you could say, like, oh, well, Andy Warhol, he changed art and the way we look at it, so he changed everything. I mean, everybody deserves, I guess, some blame and some credit, etc., but the 60s was a pretty vibrant, exciting time, no matter what oh, kind yeah. of art you're talking about. Whether you're talking about fiction or music or cinema, just a lot of cool people came along and uh, changed all the mediums as we know them. Exactly. Well, right. what can, else can we say about Bakery Girl of Monceau and Suzanne's Career? Because I enjoyed Bakery Girl of Monceau more than Suzanne, Suzanne's Suzanne's Career is actually the only one that I really struggled with. The four features – I was enthralled. I was like, all right, this is like movie ecstasy. But I'm a, I watched the shorts first and I was like, oh, mm-hmm. shit. Like, I'm not necessarily that into Suzanne's career. I'm kind of yeah, check, 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 checking my watch.
1: It's definitely the weakest one. Uh, watching Bakery Girl Le Mansou a few times, it, it, it's it's a solid short film. You, you have this premise. And I think it's the best setup here. He sees a girl on the street. He, he has like a 10-second conversation with her. He's smitten. He's going to love her. And then he basically turns into a stalker trying yeah. to define her. And in his stalking mission, he happens upon this bakery. In the
2: 60s, they would just say you're being persistent. But now exactly. they're like, you're, exactly. you're a serial
1: killer. <laughs> you, can, you can clearly see that there's a difference here in time uh, because that, that was considered romantic <laughs> once upon Absolutely. a time. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, but anyway. it's like people who will say the same thing about, like, The
2: Graduate. Like, is he, like, dangerous because he's chasing down the Catherine Ross character, or is he in love? And I guess it depends upon your era and your values and that sort of thing. But, uh, yeah, in and, and France, the uh, the art of um, lovemaking and pursuit, yeah, d- different code of conduct in the early 60s.
1: But I, I actually do think it adds a little extra dimension to this film if you do say, like, what's he doing? Why is he doing this? This is weird. Because of the fact that he is... Almost all of these characters are pretentious and pompous in some way that they think that they're morally justified in their actions, even when they're not. Oh, like Bakery
2: Girl Monceau, when he decides to bail on his date with the bakery girl And he decides to go back to the girl that he's obsessed with because she's had an injuries, which is why she's been out of circulation. But he says to himself as a justification that this is the moral decision. And at the time, I was like, all right, this guy's a total douchebag just trying to find a moral way to justify his actions. What really is happening is that he's just more interested in the other one, but he's making himself feel better by claiming it's the moral decision to go back to her. Exactly.
1: He started flirting with the bakery girl For fun, he's playing with someone else's emotions that he sees as beneath him because she's a working-class girl He's a college student. Yeah uh, and honestly, I don't think, I, I think if he had run, if he had never run into the first girl, he probably would have gone on a date with a bakery girl. He might have fallen in love with her. He might have had a future with her, but he runs back into his initial girl and he doesn't care about anything else. He's he's cr- crafted or created with someone Quick else. Quick
2: hypothetical question because it comes up in almost all these, but this idea of going out on the Champs Elysees and seeing a movie or going out, if you could go back in time to the early 60s and go out on a date with Jess on the Champs Elysees and see one movie, playing in real time at that time what would be your perfect early 60s French New Wave date movie to see at the time when all the cocktails oh. a cocktail uh, uh, basically all the cafes and everything are all and the clubs are all uh, vibrant and exciting but in my mind because it appears in all these movies, I just I, it, it feels like Forty Second Street in the early seventies in New York with nothing but like movie marquees of a, of classic oh, films yeah. and that sort of
1: thing. Oh so, my uh, yeah. So,
2: if you could go back and do that, what would you what would you watch?
1: I, I can only pick one. Well, I, I can't just stick around for a week and watch everything. Yeah, you could watch it. Oh, you can make a, a double feature if they came out at the same time. i I'd, see. I'd probably have to go for a Godard film to see that at the time. Um, of course, I wouldn't be able to understand a word of it because I don't speak French. Let's see, 1963, uh, was Viv Savi out yet, or is that 64? I think that was 62, so yeah, 62? it was probably, okay, it
2: was probably so still in circulation.
1: That's available. That, that would probably be my, my Godard pick for that time. Uh, contempt, I think, is my favorite Godard, but that's a little bit later, and it's not quite as new wavy. It's a little bit more... Uh, yeah,
2: it's its own thing. I think that was actually yeah. 63. Let me check. Uh, contempt. Yeah. That's one of the few uh, movie posters that I have in my life. I am a Contempt uh-huh. fanatic. Again, yeah, 1963, Contempt.
1: I, I'd, I'll watch that. I'll, but you know what? Shoot the Piano Player or Jules and Jim, those are both around that time. I'll, yeah. watch, a, uh, I'll watch either a Truffaut or a Godard or, or if I have the chance to see a Jacques Demi in the theaters with the musicalness. Uh, I think uh, yeah. Umbrellas of Cherbourg was around at that time. So, it's funny, Jacques
2: uh, Demi, people love his movies, but they never lump them in with the French New Wave directors.
1: He is considered a left-bank filmmaker. That is the, uh, the difference. Even though he's kind of part of the the greater French New Wave, uh, whose its left bank is him, Agnès Varda, Chris Marker, Elaine um, Rena, uh, or Elaine Renee. Sorry, I'm getting his name butchered again. So those are the it's uh, th- the other French New Wave.
2: Yeah, I guess I saw in the. Th- theater which one with by Jacques Demi that absolutely blew my mind Bay of Angels yeah Bay of Angels really got to me Lola really that got was... to me but oh, yeah, yeah but yeah he's an, an incredible filmmaker but it's funny how uh, I guess this is all these are all distinctions that just movie nerds come up with after the fact where they people movie nerds love to categorize things and they have a collector mentality and they got to know what part of the shelf where they where they're going to place all these different directors and I guess if you're just a movie lover France was a great place to be in the oh, early yeah. 60s because you had a lot of options same thing with uh, Italian cinema at this time you could go see Eight and a Half or you could go see the latest Hollywood Italian co-production like Cleopatra it was yeah. all coming out at the same time and I doubt people were that worried about all these different distinctions and categories and so on and so forth oh, no.
1: Yeah, this is a great time for cinema. And I find it very interesting that I myself did not pick a Romare film to see at the time. Not that there really would have been many choices in 1963. Yeah,
2: he really comes into his own a couple of years later yeah. with La Collectionus, which, as you mentioned before, shot for pennies on the, just pennies while they're waiting not, for Jean Louis yeah. Trintignant to become available. And it became this popular and critical success in spite of the fact that it has very little plot but I think a lot collection news is a remarkable movie and for me that's oh, the, yeah. the, the first oh, one yeah. where you realize holy shit this guy's going to become one of the, the great directors Huge. of this country
0: À l'intérieur d'un laps de temps de 24 ou 48 heures, elle est même remarquablement fidèle. Elle faisait l'amour. Elle faisait l'amour au sens physique du terme avec un type sur un lit. Je vais le pousser à la porte, je croyais que la pièce était vide. Main, Daniel Bouddha, ostensiblement la fille, moins pour m'égarer, car il se doutait de ma découverte, que pour m'étonner. La perversité, ça m'intéresse encore. Mais rien à voir avec ce genre de petit Bouddha. On a tort de caresser une fille qu'on n'aime pas. C'est même la suprême immoralité. C'est une collectionneuse. Collectionneuse? Nous avons quelque chose de commun. Je ne suis pas une collectionneuse. Je suis une petite salope sans morale. Ce qui est sûr, c'est que c'est pas ta morale que je suis. Vraie.
1: I do have before we get too far ahead, I do have a couple more thoughts on Baker girl of Matsu. And I'm gonna this is my Hitchcock connection here because the girl that he's been chasing after, we find out the reason that she's been out of commission, she's broken her leg, and she actually lives right across the street from the bakery. It's a rear window right there. She's Absolutely. been watching And I would love to see a remake of this movie from her perspective. And I think that later, Romare, he does tent like the the protagonists in all six of these movies are men. Yeah, and communism later on, proverbs
2: is almost always a girl.
1: Exactly. And I think that it'd be very interesting to see the six moral tales from the female perspective. I think in, in Bakery Girl, uh, especially La Collectionus, it'd be very interesting to see the alternative perspective. Oh, yeah,
2: absolutely. Especially La Collectionus, because these two guys are talking so much shit about her calling her the collector. Oh, yeah. And anyway, we'll, we'll get to that in a sec. But yeah, she's... G- Everybody's the hero of their own story. Everybody's got their, uh, as, as John mm-hmm. Renoir said in uh, um, Rules of the Game, everybody's got their reasons. <laughs> and yeah. so everybody can justify bad behavior for a variety of reasons, whether they are moral or not. But it, it is funny how with the comedies and proverbs, it's been a couple of years. I haven't revisited any of those since I prepared for that episode with Chris Funderburg. Mm-hmm. But I think... If memory serves, all six of them have a female protagonist, but I, but I'd have, to, I'd have sure. to check
1: to confirm. If if not if not a female protagonist, then a, a, a girl and a guy kind of sharing the role. I think the Aviator's wife is kind of uh, like that. Yeah, absolutely. But those are those are great films. Arrow has a great box set. Hopefully, that can get a. Uh, Region A release at some point, but I digress. I think I think we're both trying to avoid talking about Suzanne's career.
2: Yeah, I, I, I didn't like it. I mean, it's a classic scenario. You've like a shy guy and a bolder friend, and they both want the same girl. And like, there's some good scenes, like when they're uh, there are some scenes that really get like struck me as being real honest and true because we've all been in the situation before where you want a girl, but you're shy, and your more bold friend is flirting with her making out there, whatever. And you're basically just like seething in your own resentment and anger mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And so some of those scenes really, uh, really uh, impressed me, but it was just the second half where I was just absolutely dying. And I just started, I just started completely losing interest and it had a little <laughs> funny, en- funny ending where like Suzanne mm-hmm. gets the final laugh. She gets married mm-hmm. and Bertrand ends up flunking his exams and losing Sophie. But I just found myself uh, just not caring about the characters. Whereas with the four feature films, the characters are just, they're riveting. You can't take your eyes off of them.
1: Yeah. I I think Suzanne's career is fine to watch. I I enjoyed watching it, but it becomes instantly forgettable. There's something about it that just does not have the same pull of any of the other ones, not even Baker, Girl of Monceau. But but I do think it's too long to
2: be a short and it's too short to be a feature. It's kind of in that weird no man's
1: land. It is. It is. But it does continue to set up the kind of. the expectation, especially in the sense that, again, the character's in love with one girl. He's too shy to approach her, and this other girl keeps popping up, but she is not his ideal. She does not meet his ideal expectation. And it's kind of like I, one of the articles I was reading described the other girl as being the darker girl, maybe the more sexually liberated, maybe the more the the, the less uh, the, the, the the less boring one, the more interesting one but it doesn't feel as much like a safer choice. You would need to actually get to know this human being before you could decide anything. And these characters, they're too in their own head to really realize, like, well, maybe if I gave another human being a shot, I could like them. They just need to say, like, no, love at first sight. I saw this one first. That's it.
2: I feel like all these internal monologues capture the... I guess the pretentious or self-important quality that a lot of young people have where they spend mm-hmm. so much time in their own head with their, like, their own thoughts and their own perspective that they can never question their own assumptions about maybe they're misreading a situation. Maybe other people might have a point of view, uh, other point of view, but it's like they're they're almost self-righteous in their certitude of uh, of mm-hmm. their thoughts and ideas. But I feel like there's almost like a little bit of humor in that because we see over time, how frequently they make mistakes and misjudge mm-hmm. situations and, you know, just like or just completely drop the ball. And so, yeah, I, I love how self-righteous his characters are because I feel like it, in a strange way, adds to the humor to some of the later. It things.
1: does. It, it, it highlights how wrong they are. They are yeah. Because or how fallible see- people can be. Exactly. And I also find it very interesting that kind of as the moral tales progress, the ages of the protagonists seem to increase very slightly because the first two they're in college. The second two it's young professionals. Actually and the the, the, the latter two they're kind of in their like late thirties approaching marriage. Yeah, so it's f-
2: almost like the characters are growing up with Eric Romer and Eric Romer's writing and creating the world in which he would like to live, which I feel like a lot of artists do. like They, they paint the world they want to see. They make the mm. films that they want that, to that they want to watch. But when it comes to the characters and the conversations they have, the moral conundrums are interesting, but the way they sit around having conversations like in My Night of Mods about, oh, well, I'm a Catholic and I think this, or I'm a Marxist and I think this, you could tell like, this is how, if Eric Romer had his way, like the whole world would be just people sitting around having fascinating conversations and yeah. intellectual conversations about Pascal and so on and so forth. And I, But I feel like that's kind of the job of an artist is to create the world in which you want to live.
1: To kind of transition into My Night at Mods, it's, it's amazing that he's able to film these conversations of people talking about highfalutin ideas in a way that does not in itself seem pretentious. Yeah, the characters themselves might be, but you don't feel like, what is this guy doing? It, it does not suffer from like student film syndrome where you can have a group of people sitting around a table talking about whatever the director thinks. You you have a conflict of ideas. Yeah, you it have- speaks
2: volumes that Francois Truffaut, of all people, read the script for My Night of Mods. And he and Romer had a bit of a falling out. He he doesn't elaborate on it, but Romer says that Truffaut had played a role in kind of pushing Romer, Romer out of... Calle du Cinema, but that, and over the long term, he thanked him for that because he was wasting so much of his life with, the, with the administrative duties that he wasn't really living a creative life. But yeah. then after seeing La Collection Noose, Truffaut was impressed and then when he saw the script for Manana Maz, he said, whatever it takes, we're going to get this produced, which I think is a really cool moment, like world's turn on these moments where a filmmaker is very well established, already beloved. I mean, by the late 60s, Truffaut was one of the biggest directors internationally in the world. Mm-hmm. And now for him to go to bat with somebody where he, kind of where they'd been kind of enemies at one point, I, I find that to be a, a really telling moment about Truffaut as a person.
1: Oh yes, and I believe they 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 came back together because uh, Romer was working as a television producer, as as like his day job while he's yeah, making yeah, yeah. these movies.
2: Brought him in to talk about Jean Vigo and Truffaut is a Jean Vigo yeah.
1: freak. So so he's he's writing these these segments for for these TV documentaries brought in. Truffaut. And I think I'd also said something about Romare, despite the fact that he and Truffaut had a falling out. He said, well, this guy knows what he's talking about with yeah. this. I want to get the expert. He knows about better than
2: anyone else. Yeah. I mean, if you want to, it's funny how when you're talking to at least film freaks, no matter what differences of opinion they might have on any other subject on the planet, whether it's, politics or love or whatever the case might be if you get two movie freaks in the same room who share an interest in a director like all differences are kind of cast
1: aside it's like yeah. oh my god you like Jean Vigo too i love you like <laughs> yeah, you can you find your common ground in cinema I, ab- so, absolutely so i i assume that that I because I, I know that we heard that story in the in the interview I'm assuming that happened then after Lock Collection News yeah because he because Romero said that he liked Lock Collection News yeah it's so it's so weird because I know that this is a collection of short stories I can't recall the level to which they were published because it, he very easily could have just said Lock Collection News is number three but he chose to say this is number four
2: yeah he wanted to I, go th- he wanted to do three black and whites and then three colors Yeah. and so even though a lot of collection news came out first it's technically number four but mm-hmm. you know he had what's also funny is how filmmakers especially when they're getting started they have a lot of false starts and they'll kind of abandon and scrap projects the idea mm-hmm. that he had this like this, the determination and the dedication and he's like no we're doing fall, the moral oh, tales and we're going to yeah, do all doing, of them all six yeah no matter what happens in my life we're finishing the moral tales whereas most filmmakers will start something and if another Another opportunity pops up like all right well they'll zig instead of zagging etc but he just he stayed the course and kept making these goddamn movies
1: and the first two movies were never released theatrically so can you just imagine people going to see La collection News in 1970 yeah, 67 this, this is episode really like, four before? of star wars like what, yeah, what does that it's, mean it's, star wars situation. <laughs> it's like where's the first three it's like oh i haven't made the third one yet the two you can't see because they're short films and home video hasn't been invented yet like all right but
2: i think Lock like, Collection a it's obviously the most modestly scaled of them, but I, I was watching it on a train, and even though I was watching it under the, the least ideal circumstances, I just found myself absolutely riveted. It's classic scenario. It almost reminded me of like a like Shakespeare's I Love Labor's Lost, where you have these two guys sitting in this Italian villa who want to spend their entire days just reading and swimming and living a moral life and living this monastic life. Their moral life. Yeah, their moral life and their... That's air quotes. For yeah. Their uh, doesn't
1: read in a podcast. Yeah, their
2: sense of calm is disrupted by the fact that another another person has been offered uh, a, a place to, uh, to sleep in this house as well because they all have a mutual friend who's get, allowing them access to this villa. And this girl, you know, she's young and she's having fun and she enjoys going on dates and sometimes the guys come home and just the fact that she's bringing home guys is just completely, totally destroying their sense of calm. And for any guy ever who has wanted something that they can't have. I think that this movie is a fascinating, gives a fascinating insight into the way sometimes guys will behave in terms of you'll want the woman, but you can't have her. So you need to destroy her, but you're still kind of hoping maybe she'll come around. Like, I feel between the two male characters, we get two different approaches to how they handle. This. what Was it
1: I Day, Is that her name? Uh, the yeah, the... He- Heidi. If you want to be really American about yeah, it,
2: yeah, absolutely, Heidi. And uh, but I just I, I found it to have so many deep and honest insights into the way horny young men will behave when they are frustrated that they can't have something that's walking around basically
1: naked <laughs> all, all day, every day around them. And what's crazy, like if if Heide had been a man, if this had just been a young man, I don't think they would have really cared about him or anything that he's doing. They would have just gone their own separate ways because we just have two uh, layabouts basically uh, crashing at their friend's like vacation house when he's not there because they have nothing better to do. Like our, our main character is described as being on permanent vacations. Like, yeah, he is. He doesn't have anything better to do. So he and just even happens. doing
2: nothing is like a moral stance. Like they, they, exactly. they try to find a way
1: to make it sound very highfalutin. Mm-hmm. But uh, so his first interaction with Heide is seeing her in bed with another man, which has completely uh, crafted his perception of her from that point forward. That she is basically a slut, and she hangs around in her bathing suit all day. And that she must be in love with me. That that must be her her motivation. But at the same time, like this dude's always in his bathing suit all day. He doesn't do anything. The only difference is that he's not going out and finding girls. But is he not going out and finding girls because they don't they have no interest in him, or is he not going out and finding girls because he has no interest in doing so?
2: Yeah, is it it Uh, too much effort? Because they've almost turned. It's almost become like an art form in terms of doing anything that requires any effort of any kind. It's just uh, it's totally outside the uh, the possibility they want to sleep read swim smoke drink but anything involving effort must be shunned
1: and to be fair that sounds like a great vacation <laughs> <laughs> i mean you're in a beautiful location you can go swimming you just hang out you just drink why not beautiful vacation home like And to to go back to the production side of things, literally the two costs they had for this movie was renting the house in which the entire crew stayed and the cook they had on staff who only made minestrone the entire duration of the shoot.
2: It's got some vegetables in it. It'll it'll, it'll
1: keep you on your feet. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's
2: got, some, it's got some carbs and so on and so forth. But when it comes to, to like movies that announce the arrival of a major DP, I mean, every single frame of film in this movie is just Goodness. jaw-dropping to behold. From the moment it starts, where you just see this hot, tan, lithe woman walking along the beach in the bikini, you're like, all right, I don't care where this is going, I'm in.
1: And even more amazing, like they said that this couldn't be color corrected because it was a reversed color stock, yeah. which meant that it had no negative. So whatever came out of the camera, what was what is going to go into the film? So Everything they edited perfect. It, they edited it in a week, and it's one of the most gorgeous movies you will ever see because it's this great countryside, these just great shots of just people doing almost nothing. And with Romer this edited
2: it, uh, did his first pass without any sound. His real editor – left for a paying gig so he's editing this without any sound and at one point they even showed like a, a rough uh, a work in progress print in black and white with no mm-hmm. sound to try to get money to, to finish it but it just blows my mind he says that he was basically lip reading while he was trying to edit the film and then he brought in an editor afterwards to clean up all the mistakes he had made but it just is incredible that a finished film that feels so airtight could emerge from such a crazy process.
1: And the reason that it did not have sound is because they shot no sound on location. They didn't have a sound guy there. They had to dub everything later, which, I mean, it's it's part of the process for for a lot of low-budget films, especially in Europe, but that's... Just blows my mind because of the fact that it feels so naturalistic. The fact that you hear things like airplanes flying overhead—it's like that's a mistake. You think they would have gotten rid of that if they're doing it all in the studio? But no, that's part of his style. Well, it's funny. This
2: movie, the La Collect- La 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 can speak. La Collection News—it means the collector, which is the kind of derogatory nickname that these two guys assigned to her. I always, I kept forgetting the names of the main characters. I was always taking notes, so I just called the main character Sexy Steve Jobs, and I think the other guy is uh, Danielle. <laughs> it's
1: Daniel. Yeah, because yeah. the other two people go by their real names. And fun fact, going back to your intro, the guy that plays the main part in this was this close to playing Jean-Luc, Godot, uh, Jean-Luc Picard in Star Trek The Next Generation. Wow. Holy He was Michael. the second choice. Because well, he has, a, a, has an illustrious acting career after this. And he's actually and French.
2: He, yeah, so. yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> no, he, was this, he was the second choice after, uh, oh. uh, after Patrick Stewart. So in an alternate universe... This Romare star goes on later to be part of the Star Trek The Next Generation uh, Federation.
2: But I love how they're constantly talking about how the collector is the lowest rung on the human ladder because she has sex without purpose. But for any guy who's ever been sexually frustrated, it's so obvious to anyone that you insult the thing that you cannot get, and if like if and, and it's the moment that they start actually having like access to her, they start revising their opinion. Oh well, the men the, the men you're with are, are beneath you, et cetera, and so forth. And mm-hmm. it just seems, it's just funny watching like the ebb and flow of the relationships, and how Daniel, who seems to not care about her whatsoever, ends up having this massive temper tantrum and then berating her while she's just lying on the couch with a book and a cigarette, just like just chilling and relaxing. But I, I thought it just painted a a really accurate portrait of just the melodrama of late teen, early 20-something love and romance and how just, yeah, there's a lot of, it's a true roller coaster ride.
1: I'm sure many people have been in a situation in their early 20s, maybe their college years, where they're just living in a house with a bunch of other people they don't really know very well. And it very much gets to the heart of that drama, like you said.
2: Well, it reminds me of, uh, of an episode from when I was 23 or 24. I was at a beach house. I'm on a bunk bed. I wake up and I look down and on a bed down below me is a girl that I desired and she was spooning with a guy. I don't know if they hooked up or not, but they were they were asleep on a bed and the jealousy that I felt at that moment was almost crippling and overwhelming and what it reminded me of in this movie, at one point, uh, Sexy Steve Jobs He's walking by a door, and we see through a door frame. Uh, he's been out all night. He comes back, and he sees that Danielle and the Collector have gotten it on. He just sees their legs intertwined through the door frame, and it's not like a, there's no there's no real sex or nudity or anything like that in any of these movies. But no. it's but it speaks volumes, and you can just tell like the emotions of Sexy Steve Jobs at that point, like the the jealousy it runneth over.
1: And can we talk for a second about the whole reason that that Danielle and Heidi get together? It's because Sexy Steve Jobs has has this idea in his head, oh obviously Heidi likes me. (laughs) Why wouldn't she? I'm sexy Steve Jobs. And he's like, but I can't deal with her. So you need to go seduce her. You gotta go be with her. Absolutely. She's She's so much of a hassle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's the only way to get her uninterested in me is if you go with her. And so Daniel's just like I don't really want to, but okay. So they start hooking up, and then sexy Steve Jobs is jealous. Like, why'd you do that? It's like, well, you told me to.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, when and, it comes and, to love and romance, people are able to feel contradictory, conf- like conflicting emotions all at once. Cognitive
1: dissonance. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I, there's a few theories that that this movie might have some homoerotic undertones that the whole reason that he pits Daniel with high day is because of the fact that he might actually have feelings for for Daniel. I don't think that's so much Romare style. I'm sure if that's how you want to see it, there's nothing wrong with that. But Romero very much seems to be very focused on the relationships between men and women in a very honest way. Uh, and, and going back to a previous point I made, the character of sexy Steve Jobs, whose name, whose character's name we can't remember, is altogether misogynist, and it's very easy for a film about a misogynist to become misogynistic in itself, but all of these films treat women as real people, with real emotions, with real characters, with real desires, with real uh, uh, motives, with real agency. So I find it very interesting that even though the character of Heidi does not speak much, you do see her as what she is, a real person that is being misunderstood by two men um, who has been put in this box of being a collector, being a slut.
2: And in the end, she totally gets to, uh, I guess, have the final say or the final revenge where she ditches Sexy Steve Jobs in a New York minute when two guys drive by and they're like, hey, we're going to this villa. Come along. And like people
1: are... He he doesn't give her the chance to fully ditch him. She's thinking about it and he gets so overcome with jealousy he just drives away. Yeah,
2: absolutely. But we, we all can see the writing on the wall where it's just... Yeah, but she's in her early 20s. She's having fun and... More power to her, but I think you brought up an important point about how I think a lot of times people now they will watch a movie where there's a misogynistic character and say, oh, well, then the film and there, er- ergo, the filmmaker must be misogynistic too. And it's like, well, that's such a simplistic, naive way of looking at narrative and drama and stories. And I can put a serial killer in a film without being a serial killer, and I can make yeah. a movie where a guy's got misogynistic tendencies and it does not make either me or the film itself misogynistic, but it's now people love to have such a binary, rigid, narrow way of looking at movies or interpreting movies. And I feel like it's an incredible disservice just to the art of storytelling itself, where you're only able to interpret it in, with such a limited number of ways. And yeah, La Collectionuse is not a movie that's going to be easily cata- categorized by people who have got a, an agenda that they're trying to, trying to push.
1: But I'm going to play devil's advocate there, not to say that you're wrong, because you are 100% right. Uh, There's tons of movies in which you try to portray a character with negative aspects that does not speak for the whole film. But I think that with a film like La Collectionuse, Romare plays it with such ambiguity. There's almost no question that he does not like his main character, that everything this main character is saying in these voiceovers is wrong. He does it in such a way that we are – like. Typically, when we have a story where the main character is the voiceover, it's like we're seeing everything from his perspective, yet we're still feeling like a fly on the wall, seeing everything as it really is. It's a triumph to his style that he's able to achieve that, that I think kind of removes that ability uh, for someone to be like, this guy's right. It's like, clearly he's not right. You can see everything it's contradictory. You can see that clearly uh, the, the world is not the way he views it. Whereas many other filmmakers would be very tempted to put the character almost in completely the POV of, of your main character. And this goes outside of that.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I guess an artist needs to be able to say a lot of things at once. And people mm-hmm. sometimes get bewildered by that. Like most recently with the uh, the Spike Lee film, Defy Bloods, the main character played by Delroy Lindo, he wears a MAGA hat for most of the film. And I know for a lot of people, like, how Dare you do that? Blah blah blah. But he's like obviously Speckley is not uh he, Clearly. He, doesn't, he
1: doesn't wear MAGA hats. <laughs> Clearly. I mean, did, did, did they see Black Klansman?
2: Yeah, it's like I I love the fact that um you know we do have people out there still to this day who understand what it means to be an artist as opposed to a propagandist. And but mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of moviegoers, not a lot of there are some moviegoers who don't quite know what to do with a movie unless it's got a very clear, overtly stated message. And I just feel like, yeah, oh, well, very clear, overtly stated messages are, are for children. I like mm-hmm. movies that are complex, that you have to wrestle with, that are- They're challenging. Yeah, that, that challenge you and challenge your assumptions. And so, yeah, Eric Romer is always going to be one of those guys.
1: But Before we move on to the next film, uh, one thing I just need to bring up about this is one that we have our first occurrence of a prologue uh, in one of uh, these films, which happens, I think, one other time. Uh, in which we just get like three prologues, each one to meet one of the three main characters. The one for Heidi is just her at the beach. But the one for Daniel, we see that he's an artist, and his art is the most unsafe art I have ever seen. And the entire time, I'm because th- his whole thing is like, it's a can covered in razor blades. I'm just thinking, AIDS. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> someone's going to get AIDS. with like, oh, it's 1967. Yeah, it's it's like, pre AIDS world. That. Yeah. yeah, yeah but syphilis so is the worst thing exists. you could get at this time. Yeah. If that art piece still exists, someone got AIDS from that art piece. Got the hiv. <laughs> yep. They're positive about that. Well, one last thing. One last thing I do want to say, and I think we kind of touched upon this, the fact that this was made so bare bones. Like as, as someone who's trying to make films, trying to get them to produce it such a, at, at zero dollars, this is like the high watermark of things that can be done on no budget. So this is almost like the most – if if you are – anyone out there is a low-budget filmmaker that's never seen any of these films, watch this. See what can be accomplished with nothing. Uh, All you need is uh, minestrone soup, (laughs) a shore house, and talent.
2: Yeah, if if I had just watched the four features and the six moral tales in a vacuum and I didn't know that La Collection News was made under such strange circumstances, there is zero about the production value that would make me assume that it had – any sort of compromised approach in any way, shape, or form. It's a stunning achievement with limited means, and I think it deserves to be mentioned in the same breath alongside all these other features.
0: I thought there was something bizarre in his behavior. Il a des moments d'absence, de rêverie, comme s'il pensait à quelqu'un. Pas à quelque chose, à quelqu'un. Il serait amoureux, ça ne m'étonnerait pas. Ah, première nouvelle. Elle est brune ou blonde Je crois qu'il les préfère blondes. Dites quoi, ça n'est pas compromettant. Non, vous dis-je. Dites En échange, je vous raconterai ma vie. Ça menace d'être long. Eh bien, on fera plusieurs séances. Je ne connais personne, je n'aime personne, à un point c'est tout. J'ai l'air mal réveillé <rire> Oui. Encore, vous. Comme ça. vous êtes plutôt du genre gay. Très Pas vous Non, pas tellement. Enfin, ça dépend avec qui je suis. Avec vous, je me sens très bien. Vous ne croyez pas à mon amitié Je vous connais pas. C'est vrai, il n'y a pas 24 heures que nous sommes ensemble, et encore avec interruption. Et moi, il me semble que je vous connais depuis une éternité. Pas vous. Oui, c'est possible. Nous en avons été très vite aux confidences. Je ne sais pas ce que j'ai depuis quelques jours, je n'arrête pas de parler. J'ai envie de (rire) m'épancher. Faut vous marier. Avec qui Je ne le connais pas. Rassure-toi, ce n'est pas Vidal. C'est lui qui t'a quitté Non, c'est plus compliqué que ça. Il est marié. Ah oui. Écoute, Françoise, tu sais combien je te respecte et respecte ta liberté si tu ne m'aimes pas. Mais si tu fous. Non, je veux dire, si tu n'es pas sûr de m'aimer. Mais si je t'aime, c'est toi que j'aime. Et lui Alors c'est vrai. Je devrais faire marcher. De toute façon, vous ne saurez rien. C'est donc qu'il y a quelque chose. Oui, si ça peut vous faire plaisir. <laughs> Alors, au téléphone.
2: Let's move on to what I think I, mean, I loved all. I loved all four of these features, but I think this is my favorite of the four features we're discussing today. My Night at Mods, where it took me 23 years to to get around to watching it after being exposed to it in that French film class, and it absolutely lived up to the hype. This is one of those flicks where, I guess, whether you're talking about movies like My Dinner with Andre, whatever the case may be, whenever people want to talk about people talking in rooms, My Night at Mods inevitably is going to come up. Uh, um to my amazement i found it on hBO max while waiting for my uh Blu-ray oh, yeah. my blu-ray box set to arrive but yeah because
1: uh, they have a lot of carryovers from the criterion channel at first like what hbo oh wait yeah, no, that makes sense
2: yeah so yeah HBO max while it has no new shows that are w- worth watching at least they've got my night up mods which i think is one of those it's for me it's always fun at an advanced age discovering a movie that I will place in the pantheon of a particular country's films. But yeah, I think My Night at Mods* is one of the essential French films. But uh, what are your thoughts on this particular
1: movie? I mean, this is this is one of my two favorites of The Six Moral Tales. It's tied. I, I won't get into the second one yet because it's coming up next. So spoiler alert. Um, but this <laughs> you is, and
2: Vincent Canby, yeah.
1: yeah uh, <laughs> this is considered by many to be Romare's masterpiece. Typically, when you think Romare, you think My Night at Mauds. And it is a fantastic film, that had so much thought, preparation, and planning go into it that you probably wouldn't even realize unless you looked a little bit deeper into the film itself. Um, simply because it's in black and white. Romero specifically wanted this in black and white because he's shooting it in. Oh my goodness, where is he shooting it? I had it in my brain and it left me. Yeah, it's being shot in. It's,
2: it's not. It's not Claremont. Paris. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's Claremont. Uh, he shot it there because that is the 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 home of Pascal. Uh, this philosopher who comes up many times for like throughout the first the half hour of the film, you okay. brace yourself because they're going to talk about Pascal a lot. <laughs> so, um, so in part of the reason he wanted to shoot in black and white is he wanted it to be set in winter, so he wanted it snowfall. Uh, a lot of the homes in Claremont are built out of volcanic rock, so they're black. So the whole film was going to be very black and white, anyways. And there was a lot of pressure once he did get funding, which he had a hard time getting. Uh, for shooting it in color because color was in in 1969 when this was finally made and he finally got his way got it shot in black and white and, and he got, had already got chose... a star
2: that he had to wait for yeah. John Louis Trentignan was already on on the way on the ascent to becoming and I mean it's incredible he's 90 years old now still making movies he's with people little, like oh, he's, uh, still alive. Yeah. Yeah, he's still alive Like I guess it was a couple of years ago where he did a couple of movies with Michael Hanukkah and it's just incredible how from the late 60s to the present day he's always found a way to work with people like Bertolucci or Koslowski or the, whatever the case might be. But there's like, name a, an iconic director from Europe over the last 50 years. And at some point, John Louis Trentino probably worked with him.
1: Oh, yeah. But I, I think it also kind of speaks to Romero that he he is all about, no, this needs to take place at this time in this place, very specifically. So he waited. He had this all mapped out. He even had a specific shooting day schedule. Like, this is the day when we're going to shoot the snow scenes. And Nestor Almodov, uh, oh my goodness. Nester. Yeah. Almond was just like, oh, how are we going to know it's going to snow? It snowed. Yeah, you're going to will it into being. (laughs) Yeah. So he waited, because this is obviously the third one in the actual overall uh, entry. He didn't choose to change the the titles or the order. He just made it second because he needed it to be perfect. And it is perfect. It's a perfect film. And it's about uh, a, a Catholic who, uh, once again, he has seen a girl in a church that meets his ideal for what a woman should be. Uh, And it's almost like playing with, it's all about playing with odds, because Pascal's wager is that men uh, gamble with their lives over the existence of God. They are going to basically live their lives and gamble it uh, based on this one unknown, is there a God or isn't there? So that's kind of what's in play here, and this almost the gamble of falling in love because he's obsessed with this girl, once again that he doesn't know that he's not met, the odds are actually pretty high that he's going to meet a Catholic girl in a Catholic church that he finds attractive. <laughs> but what is maybe less likely is running into a friend. And this this is I also find it very interesting because this is a Catholic man, someone a man of faith who works as an engineer, a man of mathematics. So he runs into a friend, and he's like, Which well, is "What are what the pa- odds of Pascal that?"
2: Pascal was—a man of faith as well as a man of mathematics, as well.
1: Exactly. So, so our main character here, who is not named, not named throughout the entire thing, is is very much similar, despite the fact that he seems to have a a dislike for Pascal because of things he would say later in life, like, "Oh, we denounce mathematics," oh, and he- also he
2: didn't like his austerity, and yeah, it's funny. I, his character is so fascinating because he has so many contradictory points of view. But at the same time, he's so earnest and so sincere and so heartfelt. Yeah. But I can't remember the last time I saw a movie where I was hanging upon every word by a particular character so attentively. I don't know if Trenton has the ability to be boring under any circumstances, but this might be his, his finest hour.
1: This is the finest hour of a lot of people. But basically, the, the the crux of this movie is that on Christmas Eve, after the Midnight Mass, so this is like super late at night, his friend talks him into visiting uh, this, this girl that he's been seeing, Maude, at her apartment. So what, it's like one in the morning, maybe two in the morning when they're over there hanging out having late night dinner. And it's like, well, what do you think's going to happen, Jean-Louis Louis, uh, Tritignan? Something something is going to occur this night and you should have known that going in yet. You never stop yourself So they break out into this conversation We're in this great apartment in which a bed is in the middle of the living room because maude Likes to likes when people are with her when she's in bed. She likes hearing conversations from bed It's kind of showing very clearly that that she might be a little bit more sexually promiscuous or the fact that she lets her sex life bleed into normal life and uh, eventually, her, his friend, who clearly likes her, gets upset because Maud is clearly showing that she's attracted to Jean-Louis Trigagnon, And so he leaves and he says, oh, let me drive home because he lives out in the country. Yeah, he says but his no,
2: window's it, open and he's worried about
1: snow getting in. <laughs> oh, that's 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 the friend's excuse, even yeah. though he's just hurt that, that Maud seems to be more interested in his Catholic friend uh, than, than than him. But. But Ma does not let John louis leave because it's snowing. It's too dangerous to drive home. And therein is the crux. There is the moral choice. Do I remain chaste because I'm Catholic, because I'm in love with this girl that I've never met? Or, <laughs> <laughs> or do I climb into bed with this strange woman who is very interesting? Who that, admittedly
2: uh, always sleeps naked and things like that. I mean, seeing
1: all these things, you are just like, oh, my God, I can't take it. Uh, j- just, just the shot of him, just like I'm gonna sleep in the chair, like still wearing his yeah. suit. Yeah, he and he wraps up like a burrito in the chair. It's <laughs> almost like he's
2: surrounding himself with protective armor because of this beautiful woman. Yeah, you Francois Fabien who we also discussed briefly when we talked about uh Bel de Jour on our Buñuel episode a couple years ago. Oh
1: yeah, she is in that, isn't she? Yeah, she, she is. help that? So. <laughs> So, so you can clearly see that this guy's really struggling to make the right choice. And I, I think this ultimately, of all the films, has the most like, well, did he make the right choice? Because after his mo- night with mods, in which he does – well, here's the thing. It, it, he, he, he starts to get a little bit like promiscuous with her, then withdraws. Yeah, he wakes and she,
2: up. He's cold. So he's putting on some, like, uh, pulling some blankets on. She moves in for a big cuddle, and the cuddle turns into a brief little smooch, smoochy smooch. It's pretty chaste. But for him, this is a major kind of ethical slip.
1: Oh, and he backs off, but then he's like, wait, no. And she's 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 like, yeah, I prefer guys who know what they want. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Because he's got these ideas about love where she says like at one point, love isn't eternal. He says, well, my sort of love is. She's just much more of a realist. She's been in love and she lost one of her lovers to this horrible accident. But she knows that passion fades, but... There's different forms of love. There's like the like the the love that where you want to get into bed with somebody, and there's the love where you want to spend the rest, the rest of your life with somebody. But mm-hmm. she's more of a practical, realist about how life's what happens when you're busy planning for it. Whereas John Louis exactly. Trintignant seems to think that his grand design will work. He just needs to stick to the plan, and he's not
1: wrong, but did, but the question is, did he make the right choice? He made the choice based on his morals. And I, I think it also should be mentioned that Maud is a divorcee, which to a Catholic is uh tantamount to, to, yeah. to being possessed or You're something. You're going to hell. Yeah. How dare you? Um, so obviously after his night with Mauds, he does, by happenstance, run into his blonde. Uh, it, it, it almost always seems like in these films, the, the, the first woman is blonde. And the second woman is brunette. Again, going with like that darker woman. It's playing on these these film tropes of like the angelic woman versus the the, the, the prostitute. Like the the very John Ford western. Like there's two types of women: the virgin and the prostitute. And that's almost yeah, it's, what that's, these men which are. is
2: very Catholic. Yeah, I mean the virgin and yeah. the whore.
1: Which, which do you want? And the exactly. reality
2: is men want both. Like yeah. <laughs>
1: And I think it's very interesting to kind of, again, it's shown in a way that clearly this is the way that a man thinks, but this is the reality in the sense that Maud is an actually very interesting, very loving, very caring, very interesting person. Oh, she's an where,
2: angel. The way she speaks, exactly. if you're not just purring with pleasure listening to her talk, then something's dreadfully wrong. But the scene when she's lying on the bed and just trying to gently coax him in, like, oh, come join me on the bed, either on the covers or under and things like that. But she's the most gentle, inviting, warm, affectionate of creature ever ever to appear on on the big screen and you spend just i mean i've spent most of that
1: scene just screaming like dude like what are you doing like (laughs) like stop tapping the brakes and and, and it's fair to say because we we do get a sizable chunk of the movie then which he's interacting with his blonde that he met but there is so much more passion so much more connection so much more everything in his night with Maud, than there yeah. ever is pictured It's, it's one of those his...
2: conversations where it's a one night, but it's like they've known each other for decades and it has exactly. like th- this intense sense of communication and connection that comes around once every couple of decades. If you're lucky, you're lucky if it even happens once in your life where you mm-hmm. connect with somebody that intensely.
1: And, and it, like if he was just able to, to, to go against his plan a little bit, I think he could have been a very happy person. <laughs> not to say he's not happy uh, in the end, but I think that there is that question of, did I make the right choice? Obviously, um, I think he made the wrong choice, perhaps. But uh, I, I do think it's very interesting that the film, in, in, a, in a sense of doubles, has him go through almost the same exact experience with the blonde in the sense that he drives her home. The car gets stuck. He can't leave. And he's put in a separate room just like he would want. But there's no there's no connection there. It's just
2: zero. And the only time it seems like, seems like something might happen is he, he's looking for matches because he smokes. The entire movie, I mean, he's he's not gonna live long because all he does is smoke oh, no, cigarettes. No, the,
1: the French smoke like chimneys. They drink like yeah. fish. And, and so, at one point, long. he knocks I on her remember.
2: door and asks for some matches. And that was obviously his window if he was gonna make a move, but uh, but he does not. He he sticks to his uh, to his values, and he has that weird moment the following day where he kind of puts arms on either side of her, which actually reminded me of that uh, very similar scene in Red, the Koslowski film, where he kind of puts his arms up in the doorway while talking to Irene Jacob's character. But I guess that maybe that maybe that was John Louis signal signature move and <laughs> he yeah. was hanging out with girls. I don't know. But what I love about his approach to like the visual style of this film is how if you don't use a lot of fancy tricks or visual flourishes throughout most of your movie, when you finally decide to do so, they can have this massive disproportionate oh, wow. impact. And at one point he's confessing to the blonde at the morning that he met her, he was emerging from another woman's home And she says, we're never going to talk about this again. And the movie fades to black. And I can't remember the last time a simple dissolve, like destroyed me in such a way where I I couldn't believe how effective that one dissolve was because it's, there's no visual trickery throughout the the majority of the film. And so if you show a little restraint with the the language and grammar of filmmaking, when you finally do decide to whip out one of the basic kind of tools, tools of the trade, suddenly Mm. it's like the magic of cinema, like
1: bursts to life. And this this film has kind of uh, one it's still Nestor Almendros, I whose name Almendros whose name I'm clearly never going to get right but during that scene like you have them in the foreground and you just see Claremont in the background it's so gorgeous and again one of the reasons why Romero liked to shoot in one three three to one the or the Academy ratio if you want to be more particular even though that's one three seven to one so that no one on Twitter yells at me uh, uh, is so that you can have that nice headroom so you can have uh, the different levels within the frame itself. Yeah. It's, which a, it's is- a
2: completely different way of framing. And uh, rumor had to fight many, many battles with projectionists because in France at the time, it was the Everything. tendency to show films in 1.66 to one. And then mm-hmm. of course we got into like 1.85 and they just, they refused to put black bars on the side. Instead they just chose to crop it. And so, but, It's funny how in 2020, we're still fighting these battles so many times where I will watch a movie on Amazon and it's in 2.35 to 1, but instead they're showing it in 1.85 and you're losing it. and It it drives me fucking mad that after Mm -hmm. 125 years of movies that people still can't grasp
1: the idea that show the movie in the shape in which it was made. But, yeah, but then he got then he got one guy that's just like, well, I paid for the whole screen. I want the whole screen. Yeah, I was,
2: there's so many fucking dumbasses out there. I remember in college, because so back then in college, every TV was in the Academy ratio, and I, I wanted to watch movies Letterboxd on VHS. I'm like, oh, t- cut the top of their heads off. And it was like oh, my God, I'm going to just murder all of humanity because I can't have this conversation again. But thankfully with DVD, Blu-ray, et cetera, finally movies. And I love how in this interview on the Blu-ray collection how Romer at the end is like, yeah, I prefer watching movies on video and DVD because I can't go to the movies anymore. I I can't sit in any seat. I can't pick the right distance. And he just freely acknowledges that home video is actually a, a wonderful blessing in a lot of ways.
1: He was ahead of his time. We can't go to the movies right now. Yeah,
2: But, man, I don't know if – I mean, not to get off topic, but who knows if the movie business is ever going to really fully, completely recover from this because by the time – because as we learned over the last couple of days, a lot of movies have been postponed to 2021 that we thought were going to come out late summer, early fall. Yeah. If we basically end up losing 2020 as a year of movies, will people just say, fuck it, and say, I'm going to spend – I mean, streaming was already on the rise, like – I just I I don't know if movies can ever come back once people get these ingrained habits. I mean, people are going to want to go out and they're going to want to go out and have these experiences, but no matter when movies start playing in theaters again, a huge chunk of people aren't going to go just because they're not going to feel safe. I will go. I'll wear a bubble or a mask or whatever, but I have um, a little bit more of an appetite for risk. But a lot of people are not. And if movies aren't making money in the theater, that incentivizes people to make and distribute movies in other ways. So it becomes almost like a a self-perpetuating phenomenon. And so I really don't know if we'll ever see a, ever see a movie like Avengers Endgame make 2 billion dollars at the box office ever again.
1: Here's my theory with that. Again, we're getting super off topic. I think the way that we see movies is about to change. I think movie theaters are going to stick around, but typically the things that are going to be playing there are going to be your big 10 poles, like the Avengers, like uh, Marvel movies, like the yeah. Star Wars, Pixar, but yeah. it's but the ticket price is going to go way up. Yeah. I think it's going to cost like 50 bucks a ticket to go see a movie in the theater to get to be, to be the first one to see it. And if it is a big temple movie, like a Marvel movie, people are going to pay for it because they want to see yeah, it. 50 bucks they want for to be the there.
2: privilege of what, having people ruin the movie by being on their phones. <laughs> it,
1: it, yeah. Uh, no, I think it's going to become a more premium experience. It's going to be kind of like, I, and, and this is what Steven Spielberg and George Lucas have been saying for years that going to the movies is going to become like going to Broadway, where the ticket prices have just gone like way up for seeing a musical. And yeah, what, what I, I wish think-
2: they would do instead of having like a big theater, I wish they would just have like a pod, like the size of a car, where three or four people can spend a lot of money. You get in there, and it's your room, it's your screening room, perfect sound, perfect screen. It's, like you're completely enveloped. By the experience, but it's have just you your that crowd.
1: New, have you seen the new French movie theater they're building where it's pods? It looks like the uh, the Galactic Senate from the uh, the Star Wars prequels.
2: Oh, I saw a headline about it, but I didn't. I didn't click on it. What, what's that it all about? It looks weird.
1: It's they're building a new theater, I guess, to, in order to help promote safe uh, social distancing, which is like individual pods that seat maybe like ten people. My issue is, I already don't like sitting close to strangers as is at the movie theater. I'm gonna feel so much closer to strangers if I'm at a pod. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's it's a it's a complicated thing I think mid budget movies like the or we've seen over the last couple of months like movies like um like King of Staten Island and things like that where traditionally they would have played in the theater but they decided to do day and date release and they went i guess what the hell do, what the hell is a movie if a movie and a show are being like distributed in the same way. I guess it's just like a standalone story versus serialized entertainment. But I think the whole definition of what constitutes or what is the definition of a movie also might start to change because extraction on Netflix was the biggest movie of the year with Chris Hemsworth, but it didn't feel like a movie. It felt like a show. It just felt like a, a single episode show. So I think we're going through a period of massive technological innovation and changing perceptions within the audience.
1: I, I think the way that TV has been going, it's been becoming more cinematic. I think the line has be, been a lot more blurred lately anyways. So very interesting to see what the future holds. I just hope movies don't die, and I yeah. don't think they will. I think And there are like
2: shows it. that do feel cinematic. Like when Nicholas Winding Refn made uh, Too Old to Die Young, it didn't feel like a show. It mm-hmm. felt like fucking cinema every single episode. And it's, I guess it's one of those things where you know it when you see it, but you say, oh, well, it's on Amazon. Clearly it's a show. It's like, no, it's not. It's 10 episodes, but it's nothing like a TV show. 10-hour movie. Yeah, and so I guess it depends upon who's responsible and who, who's at the helm and who, who's yeah. making
1: it. Exactly. But that's that. that I, I don't think anyone expected that to come up in an Eric Romare <laughs> <discussion>. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
2: well, let's get back to uh, My Night at Mods. What did you think about the ending, this big revelation where – you can like where he suddenly realizes that the blonde is terrified that she's that he's going to learn about her past where all along he thought that she didn't want to know about his past. But it's, a, it's a, an incredible twist at the very end of the film. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it's what's great about it is that it's, again, all in his head. He could just be imagining the whole thing. But it does seem as though because uh, we, 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 we know from Maud that her husband cheated on her. And now we've come to the realization, at least the belief, that the the, the woman that broke up Maud's marriage is now his wife. Yeah.
2: And I, I love how everything's so connected. It's a relatively small town, but the idea that Maud and her husband were both cheating on each other. Maud loses her lover to this horrible accident in the snow, which is what leads to her wanting— John louis Trentagnan's character to stay because she doesn't want him to die in the snow, but just mm. how all these characters are so connected, but no one knows the full story, and everybody kind of lives in their own head and sees it from their own perspective. Once again, I feel like Romer's insights into how people behave, the, the illusions they cling to or delusions they cling to are truly profound, and I can't remember the last time I, I saw a director so deftly and, and with so much nuance explore these kinds of scenarios.
1: And I think something else to say about that is if the revelation that he comes to is true, then really there's not a huge moral difference between Maude and the girl he ends up with. The only thing that's different is his initial perception. So Perception is reality. What what was all the rigmarole about? (laughs) Why did we have to go through all that? Why did he have to go through all that? It's just because of a perceived difference in first impressions.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating movie, and I just can't wait to dig into it for a second time because I imagine I'm going to pick up even more details the I can go around. Also, I'm just... Not necessarily mentally equipped to handle all the philosophical conversations about math and religion and Marxism, et cetera, at the opening part of the movie. And I feel like on a second go around, I'll be focused less on trying to just keep track of what's happening and more just Mm -hmm. being able to appreciate all the rich detail and all that dialogue because I am a sucker for great dialogue. And if you like great dialogue, a lot of rumors has admitted in interviews, his screenplays are basically nothing but dialogue. Like there's no like cut to blah blah blah, interior alleyway, shadows shining down, blah blah blah, like all this kind of nonsense. He just writes like 90 pages of dialogue and goes off and fucking films it.
1: Yeah, and that's kind of what his short stories are. Yeah, there is some description of what's going on. It it does it, it's very sparse. It doesn't quite read like a novel, doesn't quite read like a screenplay. It's somewhere in between, but it's still very readable. I think that's kind of where that talent comes in because you you get really invested in in this conversation, as a fly on the wall, it's an interesting conversation, and, and he's uh, really become the master of it. No one else does it quite like that, but I completely understand why Tarantino likes him so much, because Tarantino is big on uh, conversations. So uh, it's it's all uh, quite good, quite amazing. Can't recommend watching his movies enough.
2: Yeah. Well, let's move into the other one that you mentioned earlier. It's one of your favorites, uh, Claire's Knee.
0: Dans toute femme, il y a un point plus vulnérable. Pour les unes, c'est la naissance du cou, la taille, les mains. Pour Claire, dans cette position, dans cet éclairage, c'était le genou. Et alors il t'a menti, il n'était pas à Grenoble. Il a pu être retardé. retardé. Oui, enfin, si tu veux. Il se promenait en la serrant contre lui, On marquait a pas de mal. Et puis, enfin, il n'était pas forcé d'aller à Grenoble. Admettons, je ne dis rien de Ah, oh, c'est fou Oui, la Suède, je l'aime beaucoup, mais c'est pas tant le pays qui m'attire. Ce qui m'attire, voyez le c'est Le climat. Tu l'as dit mille fois, c'est le climat qui te convient. L'âge n'a aucune importance pour moi. D'ailleurs, je n'ai jamais pu tomber amoureuse d'aucun garçon de mon âge. Jeune satire jouant de la flûte, t'as vu la tête qu'ils ont, un peu, c'est dingue. T'es fâché Oui, écoute. Très fâché On n'a pas dit que j'avais mauvais caractère Ah non, 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 pas du tout. Elle dit des choses très gentilles. Elle est toujours mal Oui, un peu, on sait rien. Peut-être en mettant un peu d'arnica. Non, c'est pas la peine. Elle est très belle, mais elle fait un peu dur. Je vous voyais avec une femme moins froide. Tu trouves que nous ne formons pas un couple très assorti Allez, justement la mèche. Voilà. C'est fini avec Laura. Bon, tu l'as dit, alors... Alors, avec Laura, c'est fini. Claire, par exemple.
2: And it's funny how this was originally supposed to be set in Paris, but Romer admitted in this interview that oftentimes he likes changing the location, even if it's for a similar topic or a similar theme, and when he visits the location, he completely rethinks the story, but Claire's knee takes place in... Probably the most beautiful mountainous terrain oh ever got on film. So for people who may not have may not have heard of Claire's knee, what is going on with this film?
1: Well, it's another one of his vacation films, something that Romere does better probably than anyone else. And Agreed. some of it, his his movies that are just set like at the water or on the beach are typically my favorite of his. Uh but this is about another kind of like layabout who's just on vacation, who becomes a little bit too involved with other people well, who he's are vacationing a diplomat, around. But
2: now he's enjoying being a layabout for a little vacation
1: now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he lives in Sweden, he's engaged, uh, and he runs into an old friend who is a writer who dares him to do an experiment for her so that he can get so she can get better in 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 line with how a story would play out basically by saying like uh, this this 16-year-old girl that lives in the house that I'm staying likes you. Hang out with
2: her. See what happens. I mean, it's it sounds like uh like, 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 like Woody Allen's going to happen. <laughs> 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 and, and it's and, like, op- going to happen. I mean, wow. I mean, that, that, that's the difference between French and American culture. And obviously American culture is we're not a uniform culture, but I feel like on the East coast in particular, we still have a lot of leftovers from a, a very different era. And I feel like we're probably the most buttoned up morally when it comes to sex and relationships and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's funny just how different, like it, that, this, that in France, the idea of a man in his thirties that would be pushed into flirting with and going on hi- romantic hikes with a sixteen-year-old is just jaw-dropping.
1: Yeah, and she, the actress, she was eighteen at the time, but she's very young. Looking, oh, she looks which eleven. Makes it yeah, so much worse. <laughs> makes it so much worse. It is literally like a dad walking with her daughter. Yeah, and but- she
2: acts like a child. She keeps talking about how mature she is, but she acts like a little girl.
1: Yeah, well, she, I I think that it's like a, a soul emotion versus an actual uh or a soul maturity versus an actual maturity. But she does seem at, at least like she has a little bit more of a head on her shoulders maybe than Claire who we meet later. But clearly this dude gets a little bit too far into it, and it's almost like another luck Collectionneuse that he thinks he's God's gift to women. He's goofy. He does not really uh maybe have the all the scruples that he should have that he thinks he has. And, um, and I, I guess 16 to 30 in France at the time wasn't that taboo. It feels really uncomfortable as an American watching it. Especially well, anybody when
2: anybody he... who's got gray in their hair or gray in their beard and they're hanging out with somebody who's a teenager who's talking about how love is all-consuming and so on and so forth, the generational divide is abundantly yeah. clear to us, even if it's less so to them. But then again... Some people do like older people, and like they are it's rare with men with the older women, but it's there're certainly younger women who enjoy how like older men are less spazzy or less annoying or more set in life or have definable goals because we see with Claire this dumbass that she likes spending time with, he's just a total rube who enjoys terrorizing the local camp and getting in fights with verbal arguments with people like the the guys who are roughly their age are total dumbasses. So I can totally understand mm-hmm. yeah. that the younger sister would like this more mature, sophisticated, older guy.
1: And fun fact, uh, excuse me, the uh, the boyfriend of Claire is Maria Falconetti's uh, grandson. Interesting. Jonathan... Passion of Joan of Arc, that is her grandson.
2: I mean, I don't know if he was just like that. That's one of the situations where Romer was casting someone who just acts like that anyway. Mm -hmm. But he plays a dick perfectly well. He does. (laughs) He does.
1: I think he's trying to go for a thing like, yeah, young men kind of suck, but older men also kind of (laughs) suck. I mean, I would would,
2: would extrapolate or I'd go even a little further and just say just – People in general can be uh, can can be pretty horrible, but uh, but not not Eric Romer because I find him to be absolutely delightful as a storyteller and
1: just as a, as a human being. So I I am I'm completely forgetting now the the character's name. Where we go? There's Claire's knee. So it is not Claire, obviously. It is Laura, the uh, the, the girl who is uh who, who who likes our main character of Jerome. But but she likes him, I think, in the sense that he's just an older man. And the only time we actually see – And she's it, really bored. She keeps admitting how
2: none yeah. of her friends are around. She has nothing to do. like She's the most beautiful train imaginable, but she's a teenager. She wants action.
1: Exactly. And the only time we actually see the place where he lives is that one time he takes her there, which is creepy. Um, and the rest of the time he's hanging out at their vacation home which again is creepy since he's just basically like hanging around a bunch of like teenage girls the well, entire got time. he's this
2: attitude where he says um, like he likes being around and flirting with women because he says his love for his fiance should feel like a pleasure and not like a duty, which once again is like, when it comes to rationalization and justification of one's own behavior, like his characters are the heavyweight champions. But as well, I, I've known a lot of people like this, they say, Oh, well, when you go out and flirt and so on and so forth, that it feels the passion for the one that you're really with. And he's got this attitude where no harm, no foul. If he wants to fool around and kind of flirt mm-hmm. and touch and kiss and that sort of thing, because his love for Lucine is, uh, you know, what, what was most important to him.
1: And he describes her in like the, the, the least passionate way. So it's just like, <laughs> yeah, it's very convenient. Uh, you know, we get along. We're okay if we cheat on each other. Like, dude, and it dude, helps that crazy. she spends a lot of time in Africa so you don't have to see her. What kind of an asshole are you? Yeah. And <laughs> then he's like, and, and I, I like that he's kind of going a little bit against what the other protagonists are in the series because they're just like, I have a type. If the woman has this, 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 and this, I love her. It doesn't matter if I've met her or not. Uh, but with him, he's like, no, we get along. She isn't my type. And that's what I like about her. And then it's like, if I were to have a type, it'd be Claire. It's like, Claire's 16, dude.
2: Well, I guess Claire's the older sister, so she's a little older. But it's Claire's knee that he likes more than anything, which is obviously the
1: the, the the name of the film. Even worse, though, the actress that plays Claire, only 15 and a half.
2: Oh! Woo! Yeah, it's... Uh... So, so the
1: younger sister's older and the older sister's younger. And, but it's funny, you compare
2: this, though, to a movie like when Louis Malle made Pretty Baby, and this is almost like, we're in like conservative, kind of like John Ford territory, like there are some French filmmakers who take these older man, younger lady scenarios to these crazy, it blows my mind that Pretty Baby can be rented on Amazon, like, or, and I always wonder like... I've never I, seen that one. Oh, you've never seen Pretty Baby? No, oh, just I don't want to get too dear, but Pretty Baby, Brooke Shields is uh, like eleven or twelve, hasn't even gone through puberty yet, and full frontal nudity scenes, and she's involved with Keith Carradine, who's an artist and a photographer who likes taking pictures of younger women, but she works in a brothel with Susan Sarandon, and it's all about like who's going to be the guy that gets to deflower this young prostitute. I mean, it is bananas. Came out nineteen seventy eight. All the seventies. Yeah, but it'd be one thing if like you had to order like a special Criterion box set that came with like 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 a a lock on it. (laughs) But the fact that you can just you can just rent it on Amazon and nobody says anything. I just I guess cancel culture just doesn't know film history enough to know that Pretty Baby even exists.
1: Oh, now they will! <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, I'm spoiling everything for everybody who likes Pretty you ru- Baby. You've but... Louis Mao, Yeah, but after you've seen Pretty Baby, Claire's knee will seem positively uh, oh, yeah. conservative by comparison.
1: Yeah, I, I feel much better talking about it. Now. <laughs> <laughs> but once again,
2: it's Louis Mao. I mean, it's yeah, the French. They're just they, they look at hey, these relationships in a different
1: light. Have you seen Agnes Farda's Kung Fu Master?
2: I've only seen Vagabond and Chloe from
1: uh, Claire from Five to Seven. So. uh Um, Kung Fu Master, it's Jane Birkin and Agnes Vardas' own son, who is only like 14 at the time. And Jane Birkin is in like her forties and they have a romance.
2: Aye, aye, aye. Well, you know, people, whenever it's an older woman and younger guy, people seem to give zero. I mean, if it's a teacher, they get fired, but otherwise no one ever says (laughs) shit.
1: (laughs) It's still, it still feels feels weird because her son looks very young. Gotcha. Um, So it's, it's a, it's a good movie that, that will make you feel a little weird inside. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I love Jane Birkin. I mean, she's incredible, and uh, I loved her in Blow Up, and um, I guess she, she was more of like a celebrity icon than like great, yeah. great actor, but I, I but I do enjoy mm-hmm. all those great pictures of her and Sergey Gainsbourg going to Oscar parties where she's wearing these like translucent diaphanous dresses and things like mm-hmm. that, and uh, yeah, they were quite the it couple in the 70s. Oh,
1: yeah. No, but only the French can get away with making movies like this. But but it, it just becomes so interesting as we see this this uh, Jerome's moral decay almost as he's just like no I'm above this I'm a man I'm gonna humor you I don't need this This is a little girl. It's fine, but then suddenly Claire comes into it, and he's like, "She's my ideal type. I yeah. love her knee." It's I need, like I you. Need, just I became I need a that comm-
2: knee, and he had that great shot of her on the ladder where he's just like his jaw, yeah, his jaw
1: is dropping twelve inches
2: down. And but it, some people do fetishize body parts, whether it's feet or necks. Like I remember when I was a teenager. Upper, upper back and necks, I was just enthralled and i, I, I don 't think i 'm alone look at like Hitchcock and vertigo and the way he's shooting um, what 's it Kim novak from behind like, i mean it 's a common thing, but some guys mm-hmm. get locked in on a particular region.
1: But it's it's just so interesting because he takes this moral high ground at the at the forefront of the movie and then just slowly just drops down into becoming a complete pervert and just completely like it, that wasn't even like his friend's goal. His friend was just trying to like write something. She or maybe kind of yeah. She's him him a little for bit. material.
2: Yeah, and you see he, I, that he gets a little cruel as a result because mm-hmm. he resents the fact that Claire is so involved with this complete and total. You know, he just uh, he, like I said, he's a he's a he's a rube. He's just uh, kind of a, mm-hmm. a kind of a frat guy. And he basically, when they get trapped together one day during some bad weather, decides to completely destroy any illusions that she might be clinging to about her boyfriend until he just completely reduces her to tears. And it's a weird thing where it gives him a chance to play this little game where, he, in a in a quote unquote kind of affectionate way, places his hand on her knee. So he gets he gets his rock off. Compreter. yeah. yeah. But he doesn't take it any further than that. But there is a certain malice to the way that he takes this young girl who's clinging to certain illusions and yeah. just completely lays her low and just
1: destroys and he's, her. And he's convinced himself that he's doing it for her benefit so that she doesn't, like, get hurt. But all he's doing is hurting her. Yeah. And I, I think it's good that in the end we see that what he did really had no real effect on her. It just kind of ruined her day because yeah. he's an he's an asshole. But but speaking of kind of masochistic tendencies, my favorite moment in the entire movie uh, after Claire has hurt her ankle playing tennis and he's trying to help her and the friend. Oh my goodness! The friend in this one is tr- 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 going to my notes here. Aurora, uh, who who the, the novelist who kind of set this whole thing. I think that she does want to 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 put this guy in bad situations and wants to see him suffer a little bit. She's because an of the instigator. Tha- yeah. she's an in instigator the because she goes to hand him something and pulls it away at the last second causing him to fall and almost put his hand on her yep, knee absolutely yeah she's she's stirring the pot that's what writers
2: writers need material though and writers I mean some writers like to cook things up in their heads some like to write what they've witnessed or a combination of all of the above and yeah she's in a, in a weird way where she's fascinated with relationships but has had a lot of has not been successful on, on her own on the front so she just chooses instead to live vicariously through her friends and hear their stories and she's very impressed when he He's boasting of, uh, or at least she's very interested when he's boasting of all of his moves and tactics to her at the very end, and kind of laying out his whole strategy and explaining all of his actions.
1: Mm-hmm. I have to wonder, excuse me, because it seems like Romero might be somewhat similar. Like, which one of his friends did he set up with, like a sixteen-year-old?
2: Yeah, and it's a weird thing where when he after he's finished telling his of his uh, of his antics on this front, how he says what he did was moral and as satisfying as if he'd had her. Which is an incredibly Gosh. revealing moment where, and now that it's out of his system, he can put it behind him and, and move on mm-hmm. with his life. It's a, it's a very strange thing where, yeah, yeah sometimes people, when it comes to conquests, they need the conquest, but once they've done, once they've had the conquest, then they can move on with their life. And so, his obsession with Claire, he's he's kind of expunged it from his system, but he just had to he had to come out the other end of the tunnel before he could move on. Exactly.
1: And one last thing I – oh, I don't know, if last thing. One thing I do want to say here to to praise Romare's ability to kind of like plan here, one of the examples that comes up is kind of like how is this guy such a freak at doing things, is the fact that in the script he wanted the cherries to be ripe and the roses to be in bloom. Yeah. Those two things do not happen at the same time. They happen very close to one another. So he planned his entire shoot, shooting schedule around that. For the sweet uh, spot. Yeah, it's like one in exactly. the snow and, uh, you know, my out of exactly. mods. But this movie also has a really great little, uh, like narrative. I don't even want to call it a trick, but narrative thing that propels it forward, and that each scene takes place basically on a different day, and you kind of have like a diary entry almost in there. Uh it's 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 basically takes place I over the course of the month of July. So it takes place over a long period of time, whereas something like My Night at Mods takes place over maybe one day. A lot of the a lot of the other stories take place over a very short period of time. This one's a little bit more expanded. And one of my other favorite Romero films, The Green Ray, which is part of the comedies and oh, it's Proverbs a, It's series, astonishing, yeah. Also, if
2: you look up people's favorite uh movies of Romer, oftentimes that that My Night at Maud, My Night at Mods are always swapping places on the number one.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, my, my top three uh, Green Ray, this, and my Edit Mods, not in that particular order, but that also employs that like oh these different days and that one's great because it's just about a girl on vacation with a huge sense of ennui who doesn't want to see that movie yeah. I know that you, you can't you almost can't sell a Romare movie because it's like well it's a bunch of people talking but yeah. they're at the beach this time
2: yeah it's a bunch of people like whether it's the beach or the mountains or the city people talking yeah. about life talking about their relationships they, and they were at the a,
1: beach in the last one this is a different beach and it's though.
2: not only the men who've got strange attitudes about sex and conquest and this is one woman in this character who says uh, essentially that if she can't have all men then she won't settle for just one. I was like, all right. Yeah. Well, at least you, you, you know who you are, you know what you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I never try to judge filmmakers or films from different periods according to whatever values that I might have or whatever values I might have in, in a particular calendar year. I always try to tackle the movie or understand the movie in the context of the era in which it's made, the perspective of the filmmaker. And I like filmmakers who take us into strange and unusual territory. And while this world of very rigid moral codes is totally unknown to me. I I, I have to confess that I find all these characters and these moral predicaments that they create for themselves to be absolutely fascinating because it's so utterly unlike how I live my own life.
1: And there is something, I think, a little bit timeless, particularly about uh, Claire's Knee and Lock Collection News, where you kind of forget sometimes what Era they're set in the costumes are great. The yeah. costumes. Is it
2: 1920s are... or 1970s? Like it doesn't really matter.
1: Or is it? Or is it last year? It yeah. could be. It could potentially be. Uh, the, the ones that are set a little bit more in Paris or in black and white because black and white is is such an anachronistic thing now. It's so old. My edit mods very much feels like it's in the 60s. It almost feels older than 1969 because it's black and white. Even though black and white movies still get made today. But then our next film, Love in the Afternoon, I think because it's a little bit more. Hip, not maybe, not maybe not so much hip, but maybe because of the sense that it's back in Paris. Yeah, it's in, it's in the city. it's a little bit contemporary. More its yeah. yeah, it's very contemporary. Whereas La Collectionneuse and uh, Claire's Knee, they could
2: happen any time. They, they feel timeless, absolutely. Yeah. Where Chloe in the afternoon feels like the early '70s, baby, which is which is oh, never yeah. a bad thing.
0: Dans le train, je préfère de beaucoup le livre au journal, et pas seulement à cause de la commodité du format. Le journal ne mobilise pas assez mon attention et surtout ne me fait pas suffisamment sortir de la vie présente. Mon trajet matin et soir correspond à peu près à la dose de lecture que j'aime absorber sans interruption. Le soir, à la maison, je lis aussi mes autres choses. J'aime poursuivre plusieurs lectures de front, chacune ayant son temps et son lieu, toutes me transportant hors du lieu et du temps que je vis. Mais je ne pourrais pas lire si j'étais seul dans une cellule au mur nu. J'ai besoin d'une présence physique à mes côtés quand j'étais étudiant sauf pour le travail, je ne pouvais rester dans ma chambre après dîner. Maintenant Helenél et moi nous sortons peu
1: you get the view of my, my terrible, terrible pile of. Movies. I mean,
2: it's gotten larger since your last appearance. Uh, Before before we push on to the last movie, do you want to talk a little bit about the collection of Blu-rays in your home, how it's threatening to,
1: I guess, push you out where you're not going to have a
2: place to sleep anymore?
1: I, I need shelves. I need more shelves. But the problem is I don't have any more walls. It's, what is your organizational theme or structure right now to make sure that it, you know where to find things? I don't know where to find things. That's the problem. <laughs> I just kind of put things based on when I got them now because I without without shelves you can't organize. That yeah. is what I've learned. Yeah. So that I'm, is just I don't even like,
2: enjoy owning books or movies if I can't organize them a little bit. Like a, a stack of unorganized books or movies like makes me upset. I need to be able to organize them either by genre or by the last name of the of the creators or whatever the case may be, but I need some sort of um, approach because then it's fun to look at like, ah, oh, that's my collection, all that work. Yeah. I've watched those movies or I've read those books. But if it's just chaos, then it like upsets me.
1: And One of these days I will get custom shelving. I'll probably need to be in a new house by then because of this space I will need. But that's on the game plan. So one day I will be able to appreciate these. And it's going to be very satisfying because it'll just suddenly be organized again.
2: In addition to Criterion, do you have any brands right now that you're really uh, loving all the shit they're cranking out?
1: Oh, I, I... I've, I've always been a big fan of Arrow Video. Arrow Video's great. Uh, I've been really getting into Vinegar Syndrome lately. I mean, it's the polar opposite in terms of what they're releasing compared to, like, Criterion or something like that. What about Shout Factory? Um, or... Shout Factory, it's fine. I, I don't know. I, they often release a lot of things that Arrow also does. So Shout Factory is not the top of my list. I think they do great work, though. I, I think I just somehow got my hooks in Arrow before I really got involved with Arrow. Uh, with Shout. So if I, if like the, the Candyman, I I love Candyman. That's available in both Shout Factory and Arrow. I went for the Arrow video one. Gotcha. instead, Even though I had to import it, but that's fine.
2: But I love all these boutique brands out there like Severin Films and all these things. Like, it's so exciting now just seeing how, it, even though we're in the era of streaming, that there seems to be more players in the world of physical media and these cool, distinctive brands than ever before.
1: I think it's easier for them to get these licenses because the fact that Many studios don't want to create their own Blu-rays anymore, and there is still a demand for it, so they can still make money. So we're kind of entering like a new golden age of uh, physical media. Uh, yeah, like Warner Archive
2: seems to do a good job, but they're oh yeah, like the, they're, they're like the they're only
1: great. one. Yeah, and I just recently bought a few things from their sale, so that was a. So they're good. I'm trying to think if I have anything else in the way. I know I splurged a bit on Twilight Time as that was going out of business and I still haven't watched a single one of those discs yet that I got so I need to do that in order to justify that purchase and I also placed a uh, Eureka Masters of Cinema order which should arrive at some point it's it who knows how long it takes these days everything I get shipped to me takes like a week longer than it's supposed to yeah with, uh, the post office not being at, at the top of its game.
2: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, let's push on to the final of the six moral tales. Love in the Afternoon for 1972, sometimes listed as Chloe in the Afternoon. I think in the 90s on VHS, I always saw it as Chloe in the Afternoon. I, I
1: think that was the American release to differentiate it from the Billy Wilder film. Okay, fair enough.
2: But I know in interviews, Romer always calls it Love in the Afternoon, so we will yeah, use
1: that. That's that's the, the French title. And fun fact, only Eric Romer film to be remade by Chris Rock. Groovy. I, I, I'm unaware of. Are you, are you being serious, or are you? Remade? No, I'm being serious. The, there's a movie that Chris Rock made called "I Think I Love My Wife" that is actually a remake of this film. Okay, very cool.
2: Well, f- uh, along those lines, give the premise of "Love in the Afternoon."
1: Uh, this guy is getting bored with being married, and he's uh, his mind philanders. That's that's the the basic premise. He has fantasies of having a device that could control women's willpower and the only dream sequence we've seen in any Romero film. Uh, and that's the skeeviest he really gets because ultimately we use that as a setup to, sh- to show that maybe his morals are weakening and that he might, uh, 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 if another woman comes along, perhaps he could be swayed because an old friend pops up out of nowhere who's been living in the in the States for a while in need of a job. And this is again our darker woman, our more sexually promiscuous woman, versus his wife, who is. Like, I mean, his wife's a
2: total knockout. But she it's also
1: the actor's real wife.
2: Yeah, she represents domesticity and babies and responsibilities and going to bed early. And this is the guy who really loves going into the city every day and being surrounded by beautiful women. And he's kind of depressed by the suburbs.
1: Yes. But the crazy thing is, like, even from the get-go, we see the, the wife's like, oh, I was in the city today. Why didn't you tell me you were out shopping? It's like, oh, I didn't know. So clearly he can have everything he wants with his wife. It's just that that wanderlust that he's experiencing that, like you said, a lot of people want what they can't have. They want and that, that is, strange.
2: That. Yeah, I mean, he's uh, he's got the line from the in the very beginning. He says, since my marriage, I find all women attractive. I was like, all right, this is a guy who's got the itch. Yeah. And, and
1: uh, it's a seven-year, oh, excuse me, seven-year age That's another Billy Wilder, right? Absolutely. It's the Billy Wilder, Eric Romero movie.
2: It's the closest Romer comes to actually kind of doing some comedy. I wouldn't, I mean, I love his movies. I feel so much heart and humanity, but there's not a lot of, they're not a lot of jokes. And I was like, whoa, he's he's doing no gags. Yeah, exactly. They
1: can can be lighthearted and fun. And fun fact about his fantasy sequence, every woman that he encounters was a woman from one of the previous six. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: That's a great little detail. They're all, uh, all all the women from the past, past films coming back. So yeah, the only, only
1: connection, the only time any of them appear in more than one film which is interesting because you could very easily make the same main character in all of these. Oh somehow. yeah. It would I mean if you would cast John Louis Trenton
2: all in all these films, I would not kick. It might get a little repetitive, but he's so goddamn good. It, it would have been totally fine.
1: Exactly. Instead it's all it's six men cut from the same cloth. Yeah.
2: But I, I guess I felt a little sympathy for him at times for having the wandering eye because, like, from the, within the first five minutes, when you see him, when he shows up at his office, he's got an office that's full of all these like sex machines. It's all these like stunningly beautiful redheads, which, as we learn later on, is by design because they're trying to create a certain atmosphere or a certain image when they're dealing with their clients and that sort of thing. So they only hire women uh, if they can, if they have the chops to work there, but in addition to their physical beauty. And so, yeah, he's, he's, he's in a city that's crawling with astonishingly beautiful girls. And it's, but it's funny how most movies would show the guy succumbing to his lust and his desires, and most of the latter half of this movie is all about how ultimately he's going to chicken out and just go make make a mad dash.
1: Mm-hmm. But you can see that he's very easily pliable. Like at the beginning, <coughs> excuse me, he buys a shirt he doesn't like just because the the uh, the the shopgirl says, Absolutely. "Oh, I like it." <laughs> It's yeah, like, no, no. And the, the,
2: the, male vanity and the male ego is a is a very easy thing to read. <laughs> if a kid, and if a good girl, if a good looking girl tells you something looks good on you, even if you hate it,
1: you're you're gonna buy it. It it almost becomes like his cheating shirt because he wears it often when he's hanging out with Chloe, his friend that pops up later, who who again, she's more of a free spirit. She's less inclined to to follow certain like deadlines and like she'll just kind of run off occasionally yeah
2: she'll find okay. random jobs as like a, as a bartender just to survive or she'll start living with some random dude just so she has a place to stay she definitely lives in the moment whereas with the main character he has this line at one point where he says quiet happiness stretching out in front of him depresses him like most, a lot of people have this goal where between their job and their mate or their family whatever that's the goal they want that quiet happiness stretching out in front of them but for him it's so certain and it's so set that it's starting to realize Really, like make him demoralized.
1: And I think it's interesting, because I, I could see this character before he had that wanting it, and now El- that yeah. he's had it, it's just like, oh, maybe I liked it better before.
2: Yeah, grass is always greener.
1: Yeah, Exactly. So, we, we obviously see the interplay there, and, and what becomes, like, if, if you want to get to the title Chloe in the Afternoon, it's because of the fact that these two begin to, because he, he says he hates afternoons. He hates the French tradition of taking long lunches. He'll often just go out and shop to kind of just avoid dealing with any afternoonness going on. And he t- starts spending his afternoons with this Chloe character, which, which in a way is kind of like an emotional betrayal of his wife.
2: He's cheating on her, on his wife emotionally in terms of his yeah. time. I mean, it's a very, nobody wants to know that their spouse is like cultivating this very intense friendship. In exactly. The afternoon that would be a, exactly. deemed as a threat because you're devoting, I don't know, you're just carving out a huge chunk of your life. Even if you're not having sex to that other person.
1: Especially since he's lying about it, and they they start to like plan like when they're going to have their rendezvous. Oh, I'm going to be working late, but then she doesn't show up, and he gets frustrated and all that stuff. So he's he's already like mentally prepared to do this, yet he's not quite prepared to to pull the trigger, so to speak. And Chloe is not happy with that. It's almost like going back to Maude. I don't like men that don't don't know what they want, like, Ab- absolutely. don't know what they want, um, and and uh,
2: Chloe, much like the character in La Collectionneuse. We'll just cut and run on 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 a whim and just like find some guy and go on vacation for months and then come back like like she's never been gone.
1: Yeah, but and and Chloe, she very much admits, I've fallen. It's it, for her, it's not just like a tryst. It's that she's fallen in love. And sure, she might not have scruples if this is a man with a wife, but she might just be the more care. She's oh, she is the more carefree spirit. Where it's just like I can't help how I feel. This is just how I feel. I, I the, she wants him even if she knows that she can't have him permanently. She even says, like, I've decided to have a child.
2: Yeah, uh, that's going to be the dad. Maybe my favorite scene of the movie, and there's so much going on where she basically is getting changed in front of him. She strips down to this kind of sheer see-through oh, yeah. black it's, it's one piece. It's a piece.
1: very charged scene.
2: Yeah, and she's standing, like, very expectantly in front of him, and they nearly kiss, but when he starts talking about how they might ruin their friendship, she pushes him away, but he's he's the one who's tapping the brakes. He very clearly wants her. But either lacks the courage – I guess courage is maybe the the wrong word because he will kind of wreck or ruin his life if he were to follow through. But he's unable to pull the trigger for a variety of reasons, which for her is a a massive turnoff. But she does want him to give her a child, which is a very strange proposition to be confronted with.
1: And and it could just be a way of being like, well, to to, to, uh, not just consummate a relationship but also to – like, oh, well, there is always a connection. But it it does kind of seem like once she has the child, she'll probably leave him alone. She doesn't need yeah. to have a man in her life to, to raise a child. But I
2: love how at one point she debates whether or not – like they're having a debate about polygamy and whether or not it's barbaric. And she says it's fine if both parties do it. But what she worries is that she's done all this hard work in corrupting him and tearing down his yeah, morals. That, but that, that he's, he's going to end gonna up break. cheating on his wife with somebody else, not her. But she'll have done yeah. all the work, but he'll fuck some other girl.
1: Yeah. And he even says, well, maybe if we lived in a polygamous society, I'd be okay with it. But it's his societal pressures and needs. I think it's his—again, it's going back to personal morals. Is is this something that he is personally okay with, or is it something he's not? He spends the first half of the movie saying how he is okay with it, but ultimately he clearly has reserves and issues with it.
2: I mean, I guess there's a bunch of different scenes here. For the first time, Romer's giving us little hints of titillation or nudity. There's that one Mm -hmm. bit where— The au pair is taking a shower. The baby starts to cry. She runs in to check on the baby. The father steps in. It's like oh, ooh la, la," and like you know, it's kind of a a funny bit. And then of course at the very end, where we have like the true moment of temptation, where uh, Chloe like essentially like she's dropping her towel and he's like caressing her her bare buttocks, but then he chickens out and leaves. But for a director who's been so chaste and maintains such a mm-hmm. high moral tone in his previous movies, I-, I was caught off guard by just how many uh, nude scenes popped up in this.
1: Yeah. And for someone who, who, again, gets often described as being a very talky director, a lot of dialogue, that scene there at the end of the bathroom has very little dialogue. A yeah. lot of it is just conveyed through close-ups, through people's faces, and I think that is the, the cornerstone of this movie when he chooses – he looks over and he realizes, oh, this is it. This is the moment. This is when it happens. I need to leave. Yeah. It's,
2: and, it's, and it's actually got some of the few like visual flourishes. I mean, it's been used in a million different movies where you have a shot going down a stairwell. But for a director who does almost everything in like medium shots with very little coverage and very little cutting, you actually have some interesting shots like when he's coming up that stairwell. And then when he ultimately flees back out onto the street and goes, goes rushing yeah. back down that, that really lengthy shot.
1: That, that shot of him going down the stairwell must have been a bitch-to-focus pull because yeah. every step of the way, he is in focus. Whatever rung he's on, that's in focus. And again, that's something you probably wouldn't realize if you're watching it on an old VHS. That's why I probably think a lot of people don't realize the, 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 the grandeur, the, the visual nuance of his films. Probably for many people, the only way they could be seen is on a crappy old VHS. at least, but at least on a crappy old VHS...
2: Radio. There was a very good chance that yeah. they were being shown in their original aspect ratio. Exactly. At a time where every single movie was pan and scanned and being cropped, Eric Romer, because of the, his chosen Academy ratio that he prefers, he was probably, he benefited the most from the era of the VHS cassette where everything was in that four by three ratio.
1: But, and this is not me trying to hawk Blu-rays here, but you, you get to see just the complete majesty of, of all the cinematography in these films. And it's the same restorations on like the Criterion channel, anything like that. So any, any way you choose to see these, you're going to get a good visual. Yeah, all. But these, I should
2: mention, are available on the Criterion channel. So if you don't feel like throwing down a bunch of cash for a big Blu-ray box set, you can definitely hunt it down there. But people have to remember that Nestor Almendros, a couple years later, was shooting Days of Heaven, which for some people is the most beautifully photographed film in history. And he, you can tell he's warming up to it. He's, He's getting there in stages. So this is Nestor Almendros on the ascent to becoming one of the most iconic photographers in the history of movies.
1: Oh, yes. And I, I do think the visual style of Love in the Afternoon, it's still good. There's something that feels more artificial about it because it is more artificial. It's not just set in this beautiful countryside lit entirely by sunlight and shade. There, there is a more studio element because they couldn't find, like, the perfect apartment. So they, they built one in the studio. That's one of the few times. And, and I find it very interesting. It's typically seen as a flaw when you see the boom mic in a shot. But you even see the boom mic in the shot oh, yeah. in, in one of these scenes. Because at this point, after he did my night at mods, he's like, "I'm never going back into the studio to re-record sound. We're shooting everything on location, which honestly seems like the the easier way to do things, anyways." But uh, that's uh, I, I don't know. I always kind of like those touches when you can kind of see the flaws. You can see the uh, a, a little peek behind. See the, the hand
2: of the artist. And exactly. also, I like how this one's a little bit more lighthearted than the other. Yeah. There's these great bits where anytime Chloe leaves a message or swings by when he comes back to the office, the girls who work there will kind of smile yeah, in a mischievous like, way, like, yeah, Chloe called again or Chloe came by. Whoa. And they're totally, completely on to him. And there's little jokes, like you mentioned the medallion sequence where he's having these fantasies about robbing people of their free will. He meets a hooker. And she's like, Well, my rate is such and such. And so he decides to charge her double for the yeah, privilege well, of rate's her double. fucking like, him. Well, what a deal. Yeah. So like I mean, just the fact that there are jokes. It's like, all right, well, Eric Romer, he, he's he's loosening up. Or maybe it's just because it was the early seventies and everybody was getting getting wild. I feel like nineteen seventy one was kind of the peak of movies giving zero shits in terms of uh restraint and mm-hmm. just showing anything and everything that they've been wanting to show for decades and hadn't been able to. So maybe mm-hmm. that's uh Some of that was spilling over into Eric Roomer's work where he realized he didn't have to be quite so buttoned up anymore.
1: Yeah. It's definitely the weirdest sequel. Oh, I just unplugged my own headphones so I can't hear a thing.
2: Oh, gotcha. Well, I I can hear you fine. So, yeah.
1: There we go. Now I'm back. Yeah.
2: Well, you always have Uh, a great distraction. I remember my favorite Dave Eves distractions when you had a cat that was vomiting up a book (laughs) that had
1: eaten behind you. No, that always happens. That's the joy of having three cats. They have not surprisingly jumped into the room yet today for this but we still have I'm sure a little bit more discussion. Yeah, my sister's <laughs> got
2: five cats, two of which are yeah. indoor cats, three of which are outdoor and they're totally different animals. The two indoor oh, cats yeah. are basically just like pillows that lie around and live for pleasure and the three mm-hmm. outdoor cats are just these trained killers that just hunt snakes and bats and all sorts of crazy shit all day. And anytime oh, yes. they meet or interact, it's full on all out war, but of course the big fat indoor cats can't defend themselves and are no. totally <laughs> helpless.
1: <laughs> Yeah, no, we, we only have indoor cats that sometimes like to hunt bugs to, to varying effect. Yeah, just so they can feel, still feel like they're a cat. Exactly. No, but that, that dream, it feels so out of place almost because it's so different from anything else we've seen. It's the only bit that actually has like a non-diegetic non-die- music. Like, it feels there's like no, something
2: out of like everything you ever wanted to know about sex, but we're afraid to ask. It, it feels exactly. like a completely different yeah. filmmaker.
1: The only other time that Romare does anything quite like that, have you seen uh, his version of Percival? I've
2: not, no. All I've seen are the six comedies and proverbs and the six moral tales. Every, otherwise, I'm a blank slate. And he's got this giant body of work outside those oh, two yeah. cycles.
1: <laughs> Je- uh, you, you, Jess just scared the crap out of me by sticking her head into the room.
2: Oh, nice. Tell Jess I said, what up? sorry for that no 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 worries at all Justin's always
1: welcome on the show Yeah, we we have to turn off the air conditioning because I'm right outside that so she's getting hot downstairs getting hot gotcha well we can start
2: wrapping things up any final words on Eric Romer any final
1: thoughts on his place as
2: a a member of the French New Wave or any um, honorable mentions outside of these two cycles of films that you would strongly recommend
1: it's exactly what I was getting to. So th- this could almost be an episode all to itself. He uh, I have a disc set that just has his adaptations which are not set in modern day. One is called The Marquis of O and the other is Percival. And James, I think you should watch them just because now you've gotten so used to his style Percival is going to blow your mind because it's completely different and it's weirdly watchable.
2: 1978 Percival. So does it feel like a straight up like like maybe like Excalibur or what is it? What no, is it? It,
1: it, it seems like he took like uh, paintings from the 14th century and filmed them. Oh, cool.
2: Well, yeah, I, I love the Athurian legend, so I'd be
1: all over that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I think that would be a, uh, a fun topic. Um, outside of that, I think Romare is, is a great filmmaker. He's a very mature filmmaker. He's someone that I probably would have not gotten into at a younger point in my life. And he's very quickly becoming like my role model as a director of what one should try to uh, try to achieve with their filmmaking abilities. So I cannot recommend him enough. His films are wonderful. They're incredibly watchable. They're incredibly interesting, even if they may not seem that way on the surface.
2: As I said uh, before, on paper, on the surface, nothing about his movies and theories should appeal to me. I mean, I like reading books, but literary fiction and movies are kind of two different things. But he's one of those people that... Yeah, he could have. He, I feel like in another life he could have just been a great novelist and written like fifty books yeah. instead of making like fifty movies. But he's this
1: enormous,
2: giant, prodigious body of work. And so I'm just thrilled that through Wrong Reel through you, and through Christopher Funderburg, I've now seen twelve of his movies that I probably would probably yeah. have never seen otherwise. So I just want to thank you for making such a cool pitch. I adored these uh, these movies, in particular the, the features, the shorts. So I can kind of take or leave, yeah. in, in any event. But these were, I mean, my night of mods. It is a genuine masterpiece, and I'm glad I've got it. I'm uh, glad I've got it now in my repertoire. And, and
1: and I, I, I'm glad that you enjoyed them. I, I think it was on Flixwise. We were talking about uh, some Satyajit Ray films, which you said, "Oh, it's not really my thing. They're very realistic. They're very much down to reality." You and you even said, Ooh, "Like you the most prefer- people are
2: doing laundry." That's when I, I can't. I'm like, "All right, I'm out. You're you're doing laundry." Like. <laughs> I, I, and, and
1: I, the- and it wouldn't surprise me if there was a big scene that took place in a laundromat in one of his movies. Yet it's still compelling. It's still interesting throughout. So I'm glad that you, you see eye to eye with me on these films. Absolutely. Well, let's not let it be another
2: 15-month interim before you come back on Wrong Reel. I'm always down. Because I always feel like uh, there's, so, there's so much great crap on Criterion that I have failed to cover. And you're kind of the Criterion guru.
1: So, yeah, keep, keep the ideas coming. You got it. Next time I can think of a set like this, I will let you know.
2: Anything else coming out in terms of other podcasts that you want to plug or promote?
1: Uh, there's nothing out yet that I can promote. There are some things that are in the works that should hopefully be hitting uh, the airwaves or the podcast waves, whatever you want to say, in the near future. Coming some to things planned. Holes. Yeah, coming to people's ear holes. A couple episodes of Flixwise Canada with Martin Kessler to look out for. Uh, They have not been released yet. I won't spoil anything by saying what they are, but uh, do keep your eyes and ears peeled because I'm sure they will be out before too long.
2: And where can people find you on Twitter or
1: social media? you can find me on Twitter at Cinema versus Dave. That is Cinema vs. Dave. Uh, likewise on Letterboxd. And just one closing thought I, w- I want to share because obviously this week I was preparing for this episode watching a lot of Eric Romare. In the meantime, Jess and I have been watching Friday the 13th movies. Nice. If you really want to have a weird state of mind, just keep going back and forth between a Friday the 13th movie and an Eric Romare movie. You- you'll never quite know which way is up anymore.
2: Yeah. I, when I was maybe in third or fourth grade when my bro- when my siblings and I discovered the Friday the 13th franchise and we just I, I, at that time it had only gone up through the final chapter and then the new mm-hmm. beginning came out soon thereafter but I just adored those first four or five so intensely. I think number four is still my favorite just because Crispin Glover doing those weird fucking dances and the great like skinny <laughs> dipping parties and all this crazy shit but then uh, I guess I was like in middle school when I was watching like Jason Goes, uh, not Jason, uh, Jason Lives and then the, um, the whatever seven was, the girl who was telekinesis and then eight was obviously oh Jason God. Takes Manhattan but number seven was... Not-
1: I've not seen those. I've not seen magic powers come into this yet. Oh,
2: number seven. Because um, at the end of number six, Jason gets like you know, buried at the bottom of Crystal Lake, and there's this girl who has telekinetic powers like Carrie who accidentally resurrects him. But throughout ah. the movie, he'll be coming at her, and she's like throwing nails at him and like setting, setting him on fire and using her power. So, yeah, it's basically Carrie versus Jason in number seven. So definitely give that nice. one a go.
1: Well, I will say – I'm going to tie this together. If Eric Romare were to make a slasher movie, he'd have to make Friday the 13th because it's set in like a resort Absolutely. at the water. I'd love to see that movie.
2: Well, I can't think of a better note to end this uh, podcast on. So we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. Definitely hunt down the six moral tales. Definitely hunt down the comedies and proverbs. You will be delighted. And also, if Tarantino likes them, you know at least some of them are going to be uh, worth a look. But yeah, he's one of the essential figures of French cinema. Whether you want to talk about the French New Wave or any other period, he's one of the giants. So if you enjoyed this episode, definitely hunt down Dave on Twitter. And remember to leave a rating and review on whatever platform you might have heard the podcast. And if you want some video content, you can always help me down Geeking with James James Hancock on YouTube. can't thank you enough for listening. We really appreciate it. But more importantly, as always onwards and upwards,
0: ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.